This is Jocko Podcast number 92 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. The concept of finding an IED is relatively simple. It is essentially identifying what doesn't belong in the natural area in front of you. Before one proceeds, however, one must ensure that all of the Marines with them are at a safe distance such that if the searcher unintentionally detonates an IED during his investigation, the Marines he is with will not be harmed. The first step is to take a good look at where you are and where you plan to go. Identify anything that looks out of the ordinary with respect to nature. The world naturally doesn't often have patterns or perfect shapes. Essentially, you are looking for areas where you suspect man has been in contact with nature. When one patrols in the same area frequently, one can establish a baseline observation for what to look for and what the area looks like normally. Thus, on subsequent visits, it is possible to identify elements that are out of place. The next step is to investigate the route that you have chosen through this danger area. The three main tools used for this investigation are the eyeballs, a metal detector, and a cutting edge digging device called the human hand. Proceeding slowly in a forward direction, one swings the metal detector in a fashion that covers every square inch of the chosen route. In order to do this, start with the metal detector to one side of the route and move it straight across to the other side, keeping the search head an inch or two above and parallel to the ground. Once it is across, move the detector forward half the length of the search head and swing it in the opposite direction to the original side of the route. This is a process that continues for the entirety of your time moving through the danger area. At some point during your movement along this route, you will want to investigate certain spots that you think may contain an IED. You can be alerted to these spots in multiple ways. From your early assessment, before proceeding through the area, newly acquired suspicions as you move through the area, and also from sounds that your metal detector makes. The process of swinging the metal detector back and forth and inching forward is time consuming. The best of the best are the ones that can optimize safety and keep time spent to a minimum. It is always better, however, to err on the side of caution except in the most extreme of emergencies. The investigation of a suspicious area must proceed with extreme caution. You start by kneeling down, being sure to be well-balanced and stable. You must ensure that no gear is going to accidentally fall off or slip out and touch the ground. You reach out with your fingers and with the gentleness of a butterfly landing on a daisy, move the dirt in front of the front edge of the metal hit. 
proceed forward a nanometer at a time in this fashion uncovering more dirt over a wider space until you either find the metal that set off the detector or you are satisfied that there is no danger from this particular metal hit if metal is found the area must be rechecked to ensure that the metal was found was not a decoy one may think that the tension during this time is akin to being Tom Cruise dangling inches above a motion sensor floor. But the necessity of having a clear mind and the amount of practice that has gone into this exact process makes it seem second nature and ordinary. After you are satisfied that you have cleared this suspicious area, proceed forward. As you move forward, you are also proofing the lane. That thing, proofing the lane or confirming that it is free from IEDs, is usually done with a special mechanical device, but it is now being done with your feet. And don't forget as you go forward to lay down markers for everyone else who comes behind you to follow. This is the way that I handled the situation I was now in. I inched forward with my metal detector. I didn't see anything special about the area. My metal detector was making noises, but nothing large enough that I thought it warranted an investigation. The Marines and our patrol watched and waited as I cleared and proofed the lane. Then it all went black. Now, that description is about as good as I have read about the act of searching for IEDs. And I actually never searched for IEDs in that type of method and of course in Ramadi everyone was always searching for IDs you, you were always looking you were inspecting we were suspicious of every pile of rubble every piece of junk on the road every off-colored piece of dirt or pavement or concrete or sand but we were in the city and there was pedestrian traffic and most of the IEDs were targeting vehicles, not foot patrols. But whether in a vehicle or on foot, the IED, for the most part, has been the biggest threat and the biggest cause of casualties in our recent wars. And for the enemy, it's a low-risk, high-reward weapon. And for us, it's an evil weapon. It's a cowardly weapon, and it is an effective weapon. It's a weapon that plants itself in your mind always there 
waiting. Around that corner, under that curb, on the other side of that sidewalk. It's waiting. Now, there are those whose job it is to actually interdict that weapon, the, the IED. It is their job to face that fear up close and personal, day in and day out. You've got EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, is one group that does it. Complete professionals. And the EOD technicians that I deployed with in the SEAL teams were just outstanding in everything that they did, which, by the way, was not only find and disarm IEDs. They also did everything that we did. They cleared rooms and patrolled through the streets and maneuvered in firefights just as the SEALs did. They were awesome. And in addition to EOD, combat engineers in the Army and in the Marine Corps also do mine clearance. And of course, I talk about combat engineers a lot because of the incredible role that they played in the Battle of Ramadi and the combat engineers were outstanding in their standard job of building combat outposts and building and maintaining the the infrastructure of the bases and they were they were awesome in that performance under fire but at some point the combat engineers job morphed into mine clearance and it's because i would suspect you know they work with demolitions so so combat engineers do breaches to doors and to walls they build roads and bridges and they also clear obstacles from roads and bridges and so eventually at some point this morphed into combat engineers doing IED clearance both on roads and then out on foot patrols now There's jobs in the world that I wouldn't want to do. And this is one of them. It takes a massive amount of patience. It takes an incredible amount of skill. And it takes an incredible ability to overcome fear. If you're going to actually seek out and touch the thing, the very thing that is trying to kill you in order to stop it, that's a job that I didn't want then and I don't want now and I am thankful that there was others that stepped up and did that job and I'm honored to have on the podcast tonight one of those brave men a Marine Corps combat engineer who served in Iraq and in Afghanistan And the guy, by the way, who wrote that opening description of what it was like to go out and hunt for IEDs. A guy by the name of Mr. Rob Jones. Rob, welcome to the show. 
this is an this is an honor for me to be here. I just really appreciate appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to come on the show. Oh man, trust me, the the honor's all all ours, a, a thousand percent. You can't even argue with that point. <laughs> we won't, won't let it happen. Uh, give us just before we jump into your Marine Corps career, just give us a little pre Marine Corps background on growing up and what that where that was and what it was like. Can I answer your question about uh, how combat engineers came to find IEDs? Yeah, please do. So when you go to combat engineer school, one of the things they teach you is minefield emplacement and defeat. Uh, and to do that, you use mine detectors and metal detectors. So I think that's the main reason that it uh I wonder at what over. point I mean, you think that came from World War II? I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. Because, yeah, when I said it morphed into, I was thinking like back – yeah. You know, it must have been sometime in World War Two where they said, you know, okay, we're, we, we're going to get over this river. Okay, so a combat engineer is going to get over the river. Uh, we're going to um, secure this compound. Okay, we're going to secure the compound or we're going to rebuild this compound. Okay, well, at some point they said, you know what? What if there's mines there? Okay, well, we got to get them cleared out. Yeah. So at some point they realized that you can't build if you can't clear, right? Yeah. And you can't move if you can't clear. Somebody's so, got to do it. Yeah, somebody's got to do it. And and they weren't able to slough off that job onto somebody else, which is what I, what I would have been trying to do, <laughs> which is what I would have been absolutely been trying to do. Like, hey, can we get somebody else to do that job? Uh, yeah, so that's good. So so how did you end up in the Marine Corps? Oh, uh, yeah, my background, I grew up in a, on a farm. Um, nothing really special about my upbringing besides that. What kind that. of farm? It was a horse farm. Um I hated horses because I always had to pick up their manure. <laughs> so wait a second. What is what do you do? What is the purpose of a horse farm? The the farm that I grew up on, the purpose of it was my parents would take people on horseback riding trips. Okay. And they would pay them money and they take them out for a couple hours in the forest. Got it. Got it. And so it was my duty to clean up after the horses. <laughs> Feed the horses, stack their hay bales in the summertime, get them their water. So I didn't really enjoy the horses as much as most people would. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm thankful that I, I had that experience because I think it did instill in me a, a work ethic that doesn't that a lot of people don't get. Yeah. So and I, then, I, th- I think when you come from – because, you know, a lot of guys when they come in the military, they, they've never worked hard before. Mm-hmm. But the guys I've met in the military that came from some kind of a farming background – they're like, hey, I'm so happy here. I'm not up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, milking cows or whatever, or cleaning up uh, horse shit. In your case, <laughs> yeah. oh man, the number of times I had to wheel this wheelbarrow full of manure up a, a fence board onto this big pile, and the number of times I fell off that thing. <laughs> Every time I just cursed those horses. I hated them so much. <laughs> Now I like horses fine, but so I don't have to clean You've up gotten up over me. your uh, horse PTSD yeah. from growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so then what, you, you, you graduated from high school, and then you, you went to college, right? Yeah, I went to Virginia Tech. Uh, I was actually a computer science major. Mm. Um, I'm already suspect. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Echo's impressed. I'm suspect. And so at some point during that, uh, during my college career, my sophomore year, I decided that computer science was not for me. And how, how you feel now, Echo? <laughs> huh? That's Dang. right. <laughs> Betrayed, really. And I decided, I don't know, I, I felt like I had spent the first 20 years of my life kind of looking after myself, 
and now I needed to do something that was beyond my own self-interest. And a buddy of mine had just joined the Marine Corps, so I read a couple books about the Marine Corps, Brotherhood of Heroes, about the Battle of Pele Lu, mm-hmm. and I said, yep, that's what I want to do. I want to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> so before telling my parents, before telling anybody, looked up where the recruiter was, went down there. He wasn't there. Marine Corps recruiter wasn't there. Air Force recruiter tells me to come in his office and mm-hmm. tells me about the Air Force. And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, just tell me when the Marine Corps recruiter's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing against the Air Force, but I had already decided on yeah. Marine Corps. Yeah. And so I, I joined up. And I think it's I, – I, this may be right or wrong. I'm pretty sure it's right. The Marine Corps has, like, the lowest uh, recruiting budget, <laughs> and they have the highest recruiting numbers because it's the Marine Corps. Mm. Yeah. It's just their – their approach i guess yeah it's like oh you want to be one of us right maybe yeah see if you can <laughs> yeah good luck what are you gonna do? yeah um so i joined up as a reservist my original plan because I, I was after my junior year so i wanted to finish college at least so my original plan was i did the 92 day reservist program where i went to boot camp after my junior year and then i finished my last year of uh college and then I went to job school in MCT. How did your academic performance change or did it between pre-boot camp and post-boot camp? It didn't a whole lot because I think I kind of checked out of college after my junior year. Mm-hmm. I was like, I just want to go deploy, but I, I just kind of want to get this degree done mm-hmm. I, just so I have it. Um, now, after I deployed a few, a couple times and had a little bit more life experience, it would probably be a lot different. Mm-hmm. But just those three months of boot camp didn't really change my your academic my skill academic set. approach. <laughs> I was plenty smart. I was smart enough. I just didn't care that much yeah. about it anymore. Yeah. Um. So my my original plan was to do that and then have the a little bit of experience as an, uh, an enlisted guy mm-hmm. and then use my degree to become an officer. But when I was in engineer school after that that second summer, my company, my reserve company, said. We're sending a volunteer platoon to Iraq. Hmm. So I said, well, that's the whole reason I joined up was to go fight the war. So screw being an officer, I'm going to deploy. And so then we go to my first deployment. So um, I thought it was pretty – you got a good note in here about uh, about the Marine Corps. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this. I'm taking this stuff from your, your journal that you have online, yeah. which is an awesome read. So here we go. Back to the journal. <laughs> the Marine Corps began to shape me long before I ever, ever arrived at boot camp in Paris Island, South Carolina. Carolina. It started when I read the book Brotherhood of Heroes, the tale of the Battle of Peleliu in World War II. It was through the stories of the, of the Marines told in those pages that I was introduced to the courage, spirit, tenacity, altruism, and brotherhood that the Marines possess qualities that I would soon be ingrained with as well. The basics of these qualities were taught to me and my fellow recruits in boot camp through rudimentary but effective means, the proverbial stick. It was through punishment that we were shown what it meant to possess the attributes of a Marine. Punishment would come in a variety of modes based on the same concept. Countless push-ups, sit-ups, sprinting, carrying, and of course, screaming. 
The drill instructors would use any excuse, not that they needed one, to inflict pain upon us. Not being loud enough, looking in the wrong place, imperfection in uniform, dirty squad bay, and not moving fast enough for their inspections to name a few. The reality of the situation was that we were never loud enough, always looking in the wrong place, never had perfect uniforms, the squad bay was always too dirty, and we were simply too slow. The idea wasn't simply to pointlessly inflict pain, but to teach lessons using the pain as the instructor. It was to force us to make ourselves better so the whole platoon as a whole would be better. The idea was to form a brotherhood through shared suffering and shared dependence. It was to teach us to keep fighting the pain so that the platoon as a whole could stop being punished. The point was that once we reached perfection, the requirements changed so that we were forced to constantly reach for it, thus forcing us to become better than we ever knew we could be. This is how the Marine Corps takes hunks of iron and turns them into jewel steel. That's why the Marine Corps doesn't need a lot of recruiting money. <laughs> but so true, and I liked, that. I liked what you pointed out the shared dependence and how when you're going through boot camp scenarios and and training scenarios that are really hard you realize you're not going to be able to do this alone and you're going to have to rely on these other guys who you may not in the civilian world you wouldn't have even been associated with and now you're not only associated with them you depend on them for for your survival and to get through it and that's i think that's what makes uh that's what makes that military experience, and certainly the Marine Corps does an outstanding job of it, of, of formulating that bond that is is unique to the military. Yeah, that's what, that's the thing that makes Marines what they are and, and brings out the best in people is when they're doing something not for their own self-interest, but for somebody else. And I would volunteer for the worst stuff so that I could prevent my buddies from having to do it, like walking through the Euphrates River, looking for whatever, trying to find weapons caches in Iraq, and then getting back at the end of the day just totally soaked and covered in trash water. <laughs> you know, and they'd come in and say, we're doing it again, who wants to go? And I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll go again, you know. And that's I think that's why I really... I. Uh, kind of enjoyed the combat engineer role too because I'm going out there protecting people, protecting my buddies, protecting other Marines, and taking the risk on me. And, I mean, that's what being a Marine is all about. Anybody else would have done it too. Yeah. And so you go your first deployment to Iraq, and um, what was that deployment like? Where'd you go? Uh, Habania. Over in uh, Hobby. And what? Yeah. so this is 2008? So 2008. So things are pretty mellow at 2008. Yeah, uh, Iraq kind of slowed down at that point. wasn't much going on. We had one tiny little incident where we were on a convoy and some guy on his roof fired maybe three AK rounds and then ran away. Mm-hmm. And it was still, you know, nothing. And that, but that was in like the first couple weeks. So yeah. It was like, 
Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss hey, it. Hey, what was your response to the three rounds from an AK-47? I, I continued sitting in the back of the seven-ton. Did, uh, <laughs> did, did like, an 18-year-old uh, Lance Corporal unload with 700 rounds of 50 cal? Or No, uh, it was a long convoy, <laughs> so it was way up there. And I was like, oh, I got to get out. Like, I got to get up there. But it was it was over before. Did, it anyone, did anyone shoot? Did they shoot back? Did they return fire at him? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, he like he did one of those things yeah. where he raised over his hands yeah. and then left. And by the time anybody was able to figure out where he was, yeah. he was gone. <laughs> so that was, but that was in the first couple weeks. So yeah. it was, you know, kind of off to yeah. a good start. And then uh, oh, nothing else happened really. So we, what were you guys doing during that deployment? I guess it was kind of the. Uh, the build portion okay. of uh, of the strategy at that point, you know, we were we were helping the local population build up their cities. Build. We were helping to build uh, uh, Iraqi police stations. And but what I spent most of my time doing was when we we would go out and find buried weapons caches. So just these old stores of RPGs and stuff that the Al Qaeda used to be using. Right. But they had just left there, and then so the local population would, or somebody would give us a tip, right? And we would go out to this big field, and they'd say, "Yeah, supposedly somewhere in here there's a a weapons cache." So we take out our metal detectors and sweep every square inch of that field or hill or wherever we were, tree tree line, and until we either determine there was nothing. Or we would find it and we'd dig it up and stack it, and then EOD would come and blow it up. And were you attached to a, a like a combat engineer platoon, for, or were you attached to an infantry platoon? Yeah. So the way it works for the what we call division side engineers, like combat engineer battalion, is one combat engineer platoon is attached to an infantry battalion, and then you kind of break it down so one squad of that platoon goes with each company. Got it. And then one team goes with the platoon, so you kind of help that platoon out. Uh, you're just pretty much attached to them the entire time. So when you guys would be doing these clearances of like of let's say a big field, it would be a, a platoon, a, a Marine Corps platoon, and you would be doing all all the sweeping. Yeah, so it'd be a Marine Corps platoon or a squad. It would used to be a squad. Okay, so it's set a little so bit smaller. So a squad would uh, we'd go out on a squad patrol patrol out there. They would set up security on the area, and they would just wait. Yeah. And then you'd be me and one other guy, and we would sweep. And sometimes we would have one of the infantry guys have a e tool, mm-hmm. and we'd like dig there, and you would dig, and nothing. And then would you, whatever. when you'd find caches, would you guys blow them in place, or would you recover it? I guess it would depend. We would take pictures of what we found, so we could write the report when we got back. And. If it was out in the middle of nowhere, a lot of the times they would they would blow it in place. We have to wait for EOD. They wouldn't mm-hmm. let us do it. Um, that's that's actually really jacked up. Uh, it's so stupid. <laughs> that is so jacked because up. Because there was only one EOD unit for the yeah. like four EOD guys for the entire battalion. And, and not to mention that's the fun part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and I have I, I know how to. They used to back in like 2005. Combat engineers were doing all that all the time. Mm-hmm. You just lay it out. You put. You just sympathetically detonated with a stick of C4, uh, and that's all it is. You know what this is? It's because the war had slowed down. Yeah. That's what and then, it is. Oh, when wait, the war slows down, all of a sudden people start putting the rules and regulations in. Wait, no, we could have EOD do that. And then, when yeah. it's that same thing, we had the heaviest. I'm, I'm sure when you guys were in Ramadi, you just had the standard flak vest. 
Yeah. We had this ridiculous turtle shell, front sappies, back sappies, side sappies, neck protector, groin protector, everything, butt protector. Like It was just the, the vest itself was 70 pounds. Let me tell you something interesting about that. When we were in Ramadi, not everyone had that, <laughs> and everyone wanted it. And, yeah, okay. and they, they did their best. I remember actually uh, the colonel of the brigade coming down and bringing side sappy plates down to combat outposts to hand them out to guys because everybody wanted them. They wanted the neck protectors, the shoulder protectors, the groin protectors. They wanted everything. Yeah. I mean, most, all, many guys just, hey, you know, especially you're sitting in a turret or, yeah, like load me up. I want all that. Mm-hmm. The neck, they wanted it all. Yeah. Because it was gnarly. Yeah, and then go try and do a hit on a house with it. <laughs> yeah, no, that that part's not fun. <laughs> but uh, but so it's probably that same thing where they're just coming up with all the safety rules, and you have to have your helmet, gloves, eye protection on at all times when you're outside the wire. So for whatever reason, they mm-hmm. didn't let us blow it up. So mm-hmm. we'd have to wait for EOD to come out, and then they would either blow it up there if it was out in the middle of nowhere, but if it was in the city, they would usually take it somewhere. And and meanwhile, the rest of the combat engineer battalion are out do, helping with the building, the structures, building schools, helping the infrastructure and stuff like that? It would depend. I mean, yeah, so whatever that platoon that they were attached to was doing, they'd just be doing that. And then every now and then if they needed all of us back to build up an Iraqi police station, they would call everybody in or everybody but a couple guys in, and we'd all go out as a platoon to build that. Got it. But I spent most of my time just doing the cash sweeping and going on patrols. So within the platoon are certain people designated as like minesweepers or does everyone get trained? No, everybody should be able to do it. Got it. Um, How come you kept getting the, because you volunteered for that. You said, Hey, I'll go find these. Yeah. I mean, and my fire team was or my squad was kind of, we didn't want to do the construction stuff because we thought it was boring. (laughs) I wasn't great at construct. I could swing a hammer, but you know, I wasn't like good at it. Um, and so we kind of tried to put ourselves in positions where we wouldn't have to go do that stuff. There you we go. tried to always be out with the pl- with the squads, with the platoons, as often as we could, so we could avoid the construction stuff. But then, yeah, that's what I wanted it to be doing. Yeah, yeah, be out on patrol. Yeah, exactly. So that so then that deployment, you come home, and you had already graduated from college at this point, right? Yeah. And so you come home, and then what, what happens when you get home? So well, what's your I plan get, when you get home? When I get home, well, so we were in Iraq, and my buddy uh, Ronnie and Daniel, we were all drinking, and we were like, that was not what we wanted. You know what? The good thing is when you're drinking, that's when you make your best military decisions <laughs> yeah. about what to do with your career. But yeah. We were sitting there going, that was not what we were hoping it would be. Um we wanted to do some fighting, do some killing. Um, so we were like, we got to figure out a way to go to Afghanistan. And so we started trying to look up, because we were in the reserve, so sometimes there's there's programs where you can be an augmentee, mm-hmm. an individual augmentee. Did you have a civilian job at this point? I didn't, because I just graduated college. So you just graduated college, yeah, then so you go on deployment, then you yeah. come home, and now you're saying, all right, what do we, 
how do I get back? Yeah. How do I how do I go fight? I had twenty five thousand bucks from deployment, so I bought a motorcycle. You know, yep, another great decision. <laughs> you know, that's good investment, good long term investment Never for the future. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I was look at, at I was looking for a job to tide me over, and tr- tr- trying everything I could to go to Afghanistan, but luckily, pretty shortly after we got back, we go to drill, and company says send a volunteer platoon to Afghanistan and boom <laughs> right here because Afghanistan was heating up at this yeah, time yeah if you remember but but we had still had to wait about eight or nine months before we went to the workup for that so I just took a job putting out traffic counters like there's a little tube oh, that go yeah, across yeah. the road and you attach a little electronic box to it so I just took a job doing that to that's sort of like related time. to IEDs isn't it a little bit a little bit it's on the side of the road <laughs> you know crush wire <laughs> crush wire on the road <laughs> that and I just got in shape and partied now did you did you do more drill once you're uh, getting ready to deploy uh, yeah well, uh, so when I say drill I guess I should explain that's the the deal f- uh, for reservists, you go in. It's like one weekend a one month. One weekend a month. Right. So that's they, your drill. That's called the drill, yeah. Do they escalate that at all when you're going to deploy? Yeah, so they kind of they kind of cater the drills that you do based on what, what you're going to need upcoming. Mm-hmm. So I do recall we did a couple where we would do go, uh, go do a, like an IED training mm-hmm. uh section and then we would since I had experience now we would just take whenever we were at a drill we would just start training the other the new guys that were going to be going with us on machine guns metal detectors and just getting them trained up but yeah and so a lot of the training was kind of on our own because you only get that one weekend a month and they Mm -hmm. only have so much money and they have to train the whole company as opposed to just the platoon that's going right so so then did they activate you? How far before deployment did they activate you so you can do some like legitimate real training? We so we did we actually managed to get a month at Camp Lejeune at Courthouse Bay, which is the combat engineer uh, school. And so we did manage to get a, a month long school of you know just doing demolition uh, refreshment uh, more IED stuff, patrol practice, you know, just doing all sorts of training like that. And then your workup is pretty much just however long it takes to do Mojave Viper with your battalion. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a month before that. Yeah. So so maybe three months total before you're going on yeah, deployment if you yeah. stack it three, all together? Four, three, four months. Got it. And were you, uh, were the rest of the guys, so it's one platoon that's going? One platoon. One platoon. It wasn't even a full platoon. It was just three squads. Okay. So how many guys is that total? It was actually even short squads too. So it was, uh, let me think, each, uh, there was a fire to 9, 10, 11 per squad. Yeah, so, so 30, like 35 33, guys. and like then that. three for the the brass of the platoon. So Check. Then you go, you do your desert drill, mm-hmm. and everyone's unified, and then you, do you leave before that, and then, then you, and then you go on deployment? Yeah, so they give you a little bit of... Uh, yeah, they give you a little bit of leave before you uh, have to go over. So it's like four or five days. So everybody flies home and then Got comes it. back. So now you show up in Afghanistan, and what's how's that different from Iraq when you get there? You know what? The first portion of it was not that different. Um, 
the terrain was a lot different. Mm-hmm. So, Where, in, so where'd you where'd you first go? So, uh, in Afghanistan, we were at, we start. I was I deployed with three seven as an attachment, third battalion, seventh Marine Corps regiment, and we were in Delaram, which I th- I'm pretty sure it was in Helmand Province. It was mm-hmm. kind of right on the border, so I'm, I don't recall exactly, but and pretty much. Kilo Company was the company that my squad was attached to, and they got sent out just in the middle of nowhere um, to a FOB, and then they had a patrol base that was even smaller, even even further out, that I got sent to. I was a team leader, Mm -hmm. and so usually you would have one team in the one spot and one team in the other spot, but since we were kind of short on guys, it was pretty much I was the only engineer for that platoon. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so we were in in Delaram, and so in Habania was urban. Everything was mm-hmm. it was walking through a city. Everything was urban, but Afghanistan was just barren. And what when you got out to this forward base, what were you do? What were you guys doing out there? What was the what was the infantry platoon that you were attached to doing out there? Uh, patrolling. So it was kind of similar. That's why I say it wasn't a whole lot different from mm-hmm. Iraq because we were basically just interacting with the local populace. Uh, find out what they needed, providing security for that area. Like they had a bazaar that would come every weekend, so mm-hmm. we'd go out and provide security for that. And so I was still using my metal detector to clear danger areas. If we came, There was a lot of wadis out there, mm-hmm. so we'd have to funnel through the wadi. So I checked that. Um, How often were you were you finding IEDs in that I didn't first find, part? I didn't find a one out no. there. Yeah, there was, it was a pretty pacified area. I think we had one firefight that one of the squads got into, mm-hmm. and that's it. Um, so, so your first part of the deployment, and how long was that? How long was that part of the deployment? That was two and a half, three months, I think. So that's kind of like a little tune-up, right? And then we passed that area off to the Georgian Army, and that's when we moved to Sangin to to take over from the Brits. And now Sangin's in like that's Helmand Province. Yeah. Central, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's 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 it. Yeah, that's Taliban Central down yeah. there. Uh, yeah. And so. w- as soon as you get on the ground there, did you feel it when you got on the ground? We knew. Yeah. I mean, we <laughs> we kind of did a push into that area before we actually moved out there, and we knew shit was getting real when we uh, they just they're like pack up a pack, and we got on the helicopter. And they just flew us out and just dropped us off in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And we just started walking. You just leave your packs here and start walking that way. And just just basically just taking territory from the Taliban. Now, did you, do you guys do a, a thorough turnover with the Brits? I wasn't a part of that, but not really. I mean, we, we pretty much came into Fob Inkerman and... We're there for a day, day and a half, and and the Brits were gone. No, no, we. Oh, we you left. came in, and then you, yeah. you pushed out. So and the we Brits were out. there when you were when you were there on the ground. Yeah, we were both there at the same time. The probably the headquarters elements were doing a turnover. But yeah, they were like, "Hey, we're getting our boys yeah, out." Yeah, we the field. started pushing immediately, and we had a couple Royal Marines with us and some British Army with okay. us. I think they had a small or uh, maybe a tow that we didn't have. So, like units that we we needed from them they would send out with us and they were great um 
But I, from what I understood, they just didn't have the manpower to really do much. Were they the guys that were with you? Were you were they giving you any turnover items? Like, hey, you need to look out for this. Hey, this is what's going on here. No, or were you I just, didn't receive any because okay. I. You just I just don't him. think they really went out much, so yeah. I don't, I'm not really sure how okay. much they really could have told us in, about what was outside of the patrol bases, and I never, I don't even remember. I think we may have talked to their combat engineers. We got some demo from them, mm-hmm. like, "Hey, can we have some deck cord?" And they gave it to us, and that's about it. Yeah, and that's because they were just completely undermanned. Yeah, the, from what I understand, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I'm not a part of the uh, upper echelon out there and stuff, but I think that's the yeah. reason they just. They set up patrol bases and they had the patrol bases, but they pretty much just sat there and got ambu- and got shot at every day and didn't didn't do a whole lot of patrolling. So, so then you guys roll in and the the like the broad strategy is you're going to start moving from patrol base. You're going to push out, take another compound, secure it, and then operate out of there for a while and then push push yeah, on. Pretty much just take the Taliban's territory um, by going out clearing a compound and that's what a major part of what I was doing on this push was clearing compounds just in case they were booby trapped and then yeah we take over that compound sandbag it up knock down some trees with some explosives create those fields of fire and then once that was set up we start doing some patrols security patrols and then repeat (laughs) and were you guys getting in contact with the Taliban yeah. More often? They were pretty much shooting at us most days, mortaring us most days. Not very accurate. Um, but, yeah, they were shooting at us at least, and we when we would go out on patrols, they'd shoot at us. Um, but they were always shooting from way far mm-hmm. away, and, you know, we'd shoot back. But it wasn't like further on in the deployment when the corn, when the corn grew uh, a lot taller. I wasn't there for it because I had gotten hurt by them, but uh, – that was when they were like people were shooting at each other in the cornfield, like five feet away. Mm-hmm. So, so but but while you were there, it was more distant, really far distant contact. Yeah, were, were you guys taking any casualties? I think not, not tons. I mean, obviously, every one is a major, major sacrifice. But uh, there was one sniper that got killed uh, on the initial push on Musa Kala before we even got to Sangin. And besides that, I don't remember. Oh, my buddy Ronnie got hit in the face with a piece of RPG. Um, he didn't go home. He just had to mm-hmm. go get it taken care of. So minor stuff like that. But, yeah, that minor stuff only happens when stuff is going on. Though. Yeah, exactly. So, and by the way, that little piece of shrapnel, you know, that thing can kill you just as easily yeah. as, uh, you know, a full piece of shrapnel. It went in his eye. Yeah, exactly. Um but I would say so. So you're you're like now every patrol that you guys are going out is like, hey, now how how often are you finding IEDs at this point? Not tons. Um, trying to think. And every now and then, not very often. Yeah. I mean, because the I, I think the area that we were in initially was still pretty close to the main fob, mm-hmm. and then as you went out, there would be. Um, just fields of them, and the way that we were getting out to the the patrol bases, where we were using Miklicks, and so that was mitigating a lot of the searching that we would have had to do. Um, so in that initial area, we weren't finding mm-hmm. tons. 
just yeah. every every now and then. And I, well, I, don't, I don't know if this is right or not, but you know, the closer you get to a fob, you have security on the fob. You have guys that are looking out, so yeah. it's hard for someone to come in and, and dig out and put an exactly. ID in the ground. So yeah. you you got some level of security around the fobs most of the time. Yeah. Obviously, there could be something there pre existing. And day to day life. Are you guys are you guys on MREs? Are you guys getting chow or what's what's going on day to day life? Oh man, I wish we had MREs. So at some point during the uh, deployment, we started on MREs. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I like MREs. Mm-hmm. I think they're good. You're sick. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to like M- MREs when I was like 22, and then yeah, I OD'd on them. <laughs> man, I didn't I didn't mind them too much, but then. When we started doing these pushes, we got these things called first strike rations, like the new MRE. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem with these first strike. They were awesome when we first got them the first week. They were awesome. But the Marine Corps only decided it would be good to buy three different f- meals. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of at the same time, we had outrun our water supply. Oof. So we were just stopping off at Wells. And guess what? Nobody had any kind of purifying stuff. Damn. Um, so we were just drinking well water. Oof. And obviously what you would expect to happen happened. Everybody was getting sick. Just, you know, diarrhea, vomiting. That's crazy. No purification tabs or I anything. Don't th- I guess they didn't expect us to need to use wells. But yeah. the first day, everybody ran out of water by the, by the time we ended. And we're like, well, we just got to go get well water isn't that crazy a purification pill is like i'm talking at you echo like it's a little tiny thing like mm. you can carry them so easily and they completely change the game because you can take that water out of the well or stream that's got whatever bacteria on it mm. put that pill put that thing in there shake it up you're good to go does it taste mm. different no not really not, not really Dang. people use them camping yeah this is iodine tablets yeah, yeah, yeah. In there. and you can also bring a filter like when I hike, I bring a filter, which like is a little a, pump. Like a Brita? A pump. No, it's not a Brita. You know those pictures? You can... No, it's not that. <laughs> it's a little pump. little pump. Yeah, yeah. So, and how long are you guys going out in the field for? Um, Let's see. The first push in Busaclaw was about two weeks. And so we just, yeah, walk for two weeks. We walk to a compound, stop for the day, set security, spend the night, walk to the next one. If they shoot at us, fight back, kill them, whatever, do whatever we got to do. And then we just kept pushing out and pushing out. And then eventually we got to a point in that first Musakala push where, uh, for whatever reason, they just they just said, all right, now you're going to walk back. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think I think maybe our uh, I think maybe our battalion commander had actually. He had been a little bit too aggressive mm-hmm. and had gone beyond his limits that his boss wanted him to do. Yeah. So we ended up having to give up territory we had just taken. Yeah. And, yeah, so that one was two weeks. But then once we got to Sangin, it was pretty much spend a day doing the push, take the compounds. And then you're kind of in the compound. You just go out and patrol and you come back. So mm-hmm. we weren't really out in the field field. Right, right. Uh, for all that long, but it, you know, being in a compound is still not exactly luxury. Yeah, you still don't have showers. Yeah, or... it's not the Kona Kai Resort. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> all right, man. Um, 
I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go to your journal here, because obviously on one of these uh, patrols, you got hit. Mm-hmm. And here's what you wrote about it. Two things happened simultaneously when whatever explosive device that hit me exploded. First, the shockwave cut through my toes, severing them. It didn't slow as it cut through my shins, severing them next. It sent dirt, grit, and shrapnel upward into my legs, buttocks, and any other part of my body that was exposed. Next, it launched me a few feet into the air and deposited me onto the ground, unconscious. Blood was pouring out of the newly opened arteries and into the dirt. Muscle and bone dangled from the remnants of my legs. Vicious bacteria latched on and invaded through the new openings. The dust rose and settled, and I woke up. The first ten seconds after waking up, all I could hear were my own screams. All I could see was a blurry tunnel looking up to the sky. The weird thing about the screams was that my brain wasn't telling my body to produce them. It was almost as if my mind was no longer present and my body was just reacting, or more like panicking. They were the kind of screams that are emitted from a person regardless of the consideration of the personal pride that the person has. No matter how much their pride makes them resist crying out, they don't have a choice in the matter. They inhale two lungfuls of air, open their mouth as wide as it will go, and expel that air with full force, producing a scream that pierces the air and changes pitch with no control. As seconds clicked away, my mind started to come back online, and my body calmed down. I stopped screaming, and my other senses returned. I smelled dust and the unique chemical smell of a recent explosion. I tasted it on my tongue and in my throat. After that, my feeling came back. It wasn't so much pain as one would imagine it, but more like my lower legs had fallen asleep for so long that it hurt. Except magnified by 50 times. I knew that they were gone, but how much? I had decided before I left on this deployment that I could live with below-the-knee amputations, but anything higher than that, no thanks. I'd rather bleed out. I could hear Keith Johnson telling me that they were coming for me, and soon he and Shane Otwell were over me applying tourniquets to the bleeding stumps that used to be legs. I mustered up the courage to look at my hands. Intact. I moved them downward to check on something vastly more important. The numbness I felt down there left me unsure of its status. Just kill me, I croaked out. They ignored me, of course, and kept telling me how everything was going to be okay. They were holding my hands as the corpsman knelt over me and delivered the sweet, sweet morphine that made it all better. Kill me, man. I said again, I don't want to live like this. I think my dick is gone. Your dick is still there, man, 
Do you want me to touch it? Johnson asked. I chuckled with relief as I replied, no. I asked whether the legs were gone above or below the knee. I was reassured to hear that both were a few inches below. By this time I was high from the morphine and was saying everything that crossed my mind. As the corpsman continued to work and we waited for the 10-line Kazavac to be called in, I thought about all the things I wouldn't be doing anymore. I thought about playing racquetball. I thought about working out in the gym. I thought about being in a wheelchair for the next 50 years. I never thought about how I was bleeding profusely from two major arteries and could die. I never once thought I would die, which may seem unusual for a person in my position. Naturally optimistic, I suppose. Although it is hard to claim that I was being optimistic considering I wanted to cash out permanently. In my defense, I had no idea what life was like as an amputee, and if I had back then, I wouldn't have made that request. Either way, I'm glad I stuck around. Around this time, I decided to sit up and take a look at the damage. I took a deep breath and gulped. I slowly started sitting up, but when I got to the point where going further would reveal my shredded legs, I had a change of heart. I didn't see the blood-soaked dirt. I didn't see the disjointed lower parts of my calves and shins along with my feet or the jagged edge of my remaining limbs, the skin roughly burned and shorn, the bones sticking out, and the ripped muscle dangling along the ground. I didn't want that image to be inside of my head because I knew it would be one that I would never be able to forget. I deeply regret the fact that there are those that I consider friends that were forced to have that image in their mind and will have to live with with it for their entire lives. Secondly, I was afraid of seeing the wound would make it hurt even more, much like a scraped knee as a child. I laid back down and let the morphine keep doing its job. I started getting sleepy. I just wanted to close my eyes. I thought maybe if I closed my eyes, I would pass away easily. Slap! Otwell's hand slapped my cheek as he yelled at me to stay awake. Just let me sleep. Just let me sleep, I mumbled, closing my eyes again. Another slap. That was the last time I did that. Finally, the stretcher that was going to carry me out arrived. Four strong men lifted me onto it, grabbed each one of the handles, and started carrying me to an assault breacher vehicle. They were carrying me away from the war I volunteered to participate in and the Marines that I was supposed to be leading and protecting. They would have to go on without me, all because I had failed in my job, failed to find the IED that I knew was somewhere around us. That failure was a hard pill to swallow then, and it remains so to this day. I didn't feel good about leaving them behind, but I knew they would understand. I knew they would be okay without me. We got to the assault breacher vehicle, and I asked Jimmy Goodwin one last time to put me out of my misery. After his refusal, 
that was the last time I ever contemplated accepting that avenue. They slid me into the back of the vehicle and with some Marines I had never met whose faces I can remember seeing but don't remember any of their features. The corpsman said he was going to give me something to put me to sleep and I finally got to close my eyes as everything went black. You're pretty clear about what happened. I remember it pretty lucidly, surprisingly. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I was. I think I was unconscious for maybe 20 seconds. I would estimate because they hadn't even they hadn't gotten to me by the time I woke up, and I don't think they would have spent a whole lot of time. Yeah. I think one of my guys might have cleared over to me, but I mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um kind of wish I had thought of something better to say like they got me boys you know something like <laughs> pre lesson learned preload a really cool cine- yeah, cinematic my, moment yeah and, and script yeah to go with just in case at the critical point <laughs> oh man no but I wish I would have thought of something better than my dick's still there <laughs> <laughs> makes sense so. oh totally yeah that's that was vastly yeah. more important like I said <laughs> yeah yeah, something vastly more important but the that. interesting thing about they said I was uh, below the knee mm-hmm. and so a lot of the times what happens you might be below the knee at mm-hmm. site of injury but like I said infection that dirt over there is nasty we're not used to their bacteria It'll get in there, it'll infect, and they'll have to end up chopping you off higher to save your life because of the, the infection is just uncontrollable. And also, if they don't have viable tissue, bones, and muscles that they can sculpt in mm-hmm. such a way that you can put a prosthetic on there, they'll just cut you off where at the next, you know, viable spot right. would be. Right. And, um, there's got to be like, you you know you had to have known, or you you know this is a possibility, right? When yeah. you're over there, how much did you think about that possibility? It's probably the same thing as when you were going through yeah. Monty. I mean, you know, everybody knows you could you could die, you could get killed. Yeah, but it's not going to be me. Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but you kind of have to do that, don't yeah. you? I mean, if you if you if I'm sitting there sweeping and I'm thinking, okay, here we go, this could be it, every step, I'm not going to be effective. Yeah, there's got to be, whether people refer to it the way I refer to it, like the idea of detachment and you're mm-hmm. just like not going to think about that, everybody must be doing that because otherwise you'd go freaking crazy. Yeah. Like if you were just thinking this next step could be the one, I don't, you'd, you'd never be able to take a step. You couldn't handle it. And you go out there on patrol and you see Marines and soldiers and the SEALs, they, you know, everyone's doing their job. Yeah. Just completely setting that fear aside and saying, okay, that's a possibility. Cool. I don't have time to worry about that right now. I'm going to get it done. But uh, I have – I made a dark joke before I went to Afghanistan. I did this 5K with a buddy. He said, oh, we're going to do it again when when we get back from Afghan- when you get back from Afghanistan. And I was like, yeah, except you're going to be pulling me in a rickshaw because I'm going to have both my legs blown off. He has yet to pull me in the rickshaw, but yeah. 
That's but, not uh, funny. I, I mean, <laughs> talk about, you know, fate or whatever. I don't know what... what uh, yeah. No, I don't know that's strange. fader. That's just bad humor. Yeah, I think that's just... what we call that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That is that is a way you deal with these things, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, hey, we were kind of talking about in the car over here, just like sick humor that you end up mm. with in the military because you have to take that thought, which is in your head. Like, it's got to be in your head. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to let it, like, burden you down and make you inoperable and make you not be able to do your job? Or are you going to, you know what? We're going to make a joke about it, yeah. and that's how we're going to get through this. So more than anything else, it's actually great. I shouldn't have said bad humor. I should have said great humor because that's the kind of humor that uh, we'd hear that all the time. Yeah. You know, all the time from guys from my seals were ridiculous. <laughs> my guys are just, I mean, the sickest sense of humor you could imagine. And But, yeah, the same thing with the soldiers. And there wasn't even – there's no barrier. Like, there's no barrier for that sick sense of humor when you're in the military. It's just, like, there, mm. and you're allowed – pretty much to say it across services you know you can make a joke to a marine or an army soldier about something and they they're not going to be they're not going to be offended by it mm-hmm. it's going everyone's got that same twisted sense of humor that really if you think about it we're all probably using to cope with you know the the fact that these bad things might happen yeah i think i've often i try and wonder why they say you know laughter is the best medicine and and why it's so true, and it, I think it it acts to normalize your situation. So, you know how if you're about to try and deadlift like a thousand pounds, right mm-hmm. for you, something like that. Sure, eight thousand. <laughs> <laughs> if you're trying to deadlift eight thousand pounds, and you're sitting there going, "There's no way I'm going to deadlift this eight thousand pounds," you're going to go up to it and it's going to stick to the ground, mm-hmm. and it's that predetermination, self predetermination, right? And so if you're sitting there, let's say after I got hurt and I'm sitting there going, this is the worst thing to ever happen. This sucks. I hate this. It's so serious. It's such a big deal. Then, yeah, it becomes the worst thing to ever happen. And I just kind of get into that groove. But if you can make a joke about it, it kind of makes fun of it. So Mm -hmm. it's not as serious. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when something's not as serious or not as big a deal or you make fun of something, it kind of becomes normal to you and a little bit easier to to accept. Like if you saw – if I saw my drill instructor crack a smile at any point, if you even like did this anything like that, then they automatically lose their their persona. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, if – and you can tell sometimes they were getting ready to crack a smile and they'd be like – yeah. And they just walk off. Yeah. They'd have to just walk away. So I think I think that that's probably why you have to maintain your humor in order to survive. You really do. Yeah, I, no doubt about that. That's awesome. Um, going back to your journal here, it took me five days to make it from dusty, uncomfortable blast crater in Afghanistan to a sterile, uncomfortable hospital bed in the ICU at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Luckily for me, I was much too high on, what's that, Dilladud? Dilladud? Dilladud. Yeah. To notice the bed or the trip. My amputations had started out below the knee, but somewhere during the three hospital stops along the way, the need rose for the remaining portions below my knees to be taken off. A lot of 
the time this is due to infections that are picked up from the dirt in Afghanistan. Or maybe there wasn't much that existed below the knees to, keep, to make keeping them viable. On the bright side, however, the stumps that were remaining were of a significant length for an above knee amputation. I was left with the entire femur on my left leg and only a few inches shy on my right leg. I found it funny that throughout my entire hospital stay, the remainder of my legs were always referred to as stumps by the medical staff. I had expected a more elegant term, considering the fact that this was a hospital. At the same time, however, I enjoyed the casual nature of the word stump and even considered naming them at one point. Later, when perusing my medical records, I found the elegant term I had been looking for, residual limb. Along with the major injuries I sustained, I also had a few minor injuries. I use the term minor loosely here, seeing as how these minor injuries would be considered major if they weren't sustained in tandem with the severing of one's lower legs. Starting from the lower portions first, I lost a portion of the muscles making up the inner part of my right thigh. In order to close that wound, I would require a skin graft taken from the skin of my left thigh. My buttocks contain or sustained several large wounds from shrapnel some close to the sphincter but mostly in the more meaty parts that was okay though i have always had an extra butt muscle to go around the close proximity of these wounds to the working parts of the digestive digestive system resulted in the doctors diverting my intestines to a colostomy bag that came through my abdominal area The reason for doing this wasn't because of any damage to the intestines, but because the doctors wanted to make sure that the large wounds on my butt didn't get infected. As for upper body injuries, I had some minor burns to my hands and two totally perforated eardrums. The hands would heal and my eardrums would be replaced with cartilage. I consider myself extremely lucky that I still have all 10 fingers in perfect working condition, my eyes, and most significantly, a brain that made it through the blast with only a grade three concussion and no residual traumatic brain injuries. While I may face hardships and have some sort of discomfort constantly throughout the day as a result of wearing prosthetics, at least it doesn't hurt. I don't have constant pain. Constant pain is much more harrowing is a much more harrowing plight than mine, and I can't imagine how hard it is to withstand. I spent my first week at Bethesda in the intensive care unit. I had a tube down my throat, one tube going into my arm, a breathing tube in my nose, a catheter, pads monitoring my heart rate, an epidural in my lower spine, and a wire for my pain button. Both my hands were wrapped in gauze for my burns. My legs were also wrapped in gauze, along with having wound vac machines attached them to suck out excess fluids leaking from my wounds. My rear end had a pad of gauze for the wounds there. The incision down the center of my abs used for my colostomy had been stapled back together and the bottom part parts of my stumps were, where the skin was reconnected were stitched together. Man. Like, you know, you just, you, it's just piling all that other stuff onto, and it, just like you said, you, you lost your legs and you're like, oh, you know, that's pretty much what a guy like me, yeah. I focus, oh, he lost his legs, you know, obviously freaking horrible. And then 
you don't you like a guy like me I'm not thinking about all these other injuries that you're sustaining and all yeah. the medical Things that have to happen to get that stuff straightened out. Yeah, I mean any one of those Just like if it happened to one of us right now any one of those would be major but they're just Pretty much nothing compared to the actual major thing that happened God. And and you're just so are you just uh, drugged up at this point? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for that first week, I mean, yeah, just dilated haze, hallucinations and that kind of thing and surgeries. Um, I would hallucinate nasty things like being hit by a mortar and seeing my legs splattered for whatever reason my mom was there. Uh, and then I, I recall for the first couple weeks, every now and then... I don't know how to describe it. it was something what happened you felt explosions before and there's kind of that when the shock wave goes through you and you kind of feel your brain kind of jar a little bit mm-hmm. I would kind of feel that and then for a split second I would kind of it would be like I was getting hit by an explosion for a split second like, like that and I'd be like did I just did I just pass out or something and be like no I was like, what is that? So, but that you know that like ended some up kind of like af- like mental aftershocks or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it was. It's I asked the doctors about it. They said, well, I'm never. I don't know what that is. But luckily, it went away. And after maybe it had something to do with the the drugs. I don't know. But uh, yeah. But you know, eventually you get used to that. Your body kind of gets adapted to it, and you get your senses back and. It's hard to look at a computer screen for the first couple weeks still, but eventually I would see ants crawling on me. Uh, But, yeah, you know, so eventually all that kind of goes away and you're just stuck with your little button for pain. I I remember they – you can only hit the – they'll only let you hit it every three, four, or five minutes or something like that. And they would come in during the first little bit and they would say, you know you can only hit that thing, like – 12 times in a minute, right? So, yeah, and they say, well, you hit it about 110 times <laughs> in the last hour. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'd be, because I'd, I'd be kind of like falling asleep and then I'd hit it and be like, mm-hmm. oh, make sure I make sure I got that hit. So, uh, so I just hit it again. And so, yeah. And then, but eventually kind of get used to it and then pain starts to go away. I'm sitting here thinking about like I've been hospitalized a couple times for a couple different surgeries and what a complete pussy I was, <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, this hurts, you know, and I, you know, this is, this is to, you know, re- repair something like I had a hernia operation, right. or I had a neck surgery, like these are planned operations. Yeah. The openings in my body were made by a highly skilled surgeon you know yeah. and I'm in there like oh this sucks so bad and I mean I can't I, like what you have is like a thousand times a thousand times worse and it's it's hard to even imagine and then on top of this I'm going back to the journal here to top it all off I had my pirate hat on my head <laughs> I was practically being held together by duct tape like an old dilapidated chair you're trying to get one or one more good year out of what's up with the pirate hat well <laughs> so you're not supposed to wake up when you go through germany so basically you go from site of injury to camp leatherneck to bagram air force base to launch germany 
to Bethesda, Maryland for Marines, and then you just go straight to Walter Reed for anybody else. Marines and sailors go to Bethesda. And so, for whatever reason, I wake up in Germany for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, and my squad leader was there. Uh, he was there for something else. I don't remember what he was there for. But, so he was there. I go, hey, and he kind of told me what happened and that kind of thing. And I just, I couldn't help but think, even though I was super drugged up, it was like, my mom is going to not, she's going to be sad. And so all I could think of, I'm always trying to crack a joke or whatever. So I was like, see if you can, see if you can find a funny hat for me to wear. When <laughs> <laughs> and he couldn't find one. Right, they're not gonna have funny hats in a hospital. It's a serious place. So he, he went and looked. I guess maybe he just went outside the rooms. I couldn't find one. He didn't go to the funny hat yeah. store. <laughs> uh, Bagram has a lot of things, or Germany has a lot of things, but uh, maybe not a funny hat store. Uh, so couldn't find one. I get to Bethesda, and when you get to the hospital, they pick you up from wherever they fly you into, in these big, like basically semi tractor trailer. Uh, ambulances and they they have they, they alert the hospital we're coming we're going to be there at 2pm and all the doctors come down and they rush you in and uh, do what you need to do and so a lot of the times that's where families will see their their servicemen when they first get back when they're unloading them and they give them kind of you know 15-20 seconds to hey good to see you and then they take you off and I don't know how it happened but I'm rolling down the thing and there's my mom she has this pirate hat in her hand <laughs> like, I don't know if somehow they got word back to her you still don't know that, you don't know uh, no I haven't I think I think somebody else brought it. Uh-huh. I don't think she brought it, but I don't know why they would have brought me a pirate hat <laughs> unless somebody had found out that I had asked for a, a stupid hat or something. Because I've I've never been known to wear, you know, pirate <laughs> hats or stupid hats before. So there's my mom with a stupid hat, and then so it kind of became a theme. Like people would bring me a stupid hat when they came and visited me. So I had a, a big bag eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but so. I guess what happened, you know, I hope it kind of helped my, uh, ease the pain a little bit for my mom in that initial that initial uh, meeting, maybe a little bit, but uh, I don't know. So then you spend how long you in are you in like ICU for where they're trying to get you more stabilized? I was probably there for about a week, and then you move up to the the fifth floor of the hospital, which is kind of where they put all the amputees, and there were actually three Joneses there at the time so the nurses had to be very careful and on top of that my i'm jones rr first two initials my buddy who got hit maybe an hour before me his name is jones dd and then the third jones was jones jj dang so they had to be on it yeah. with you know with checking what medications are going to to who Eesh. but yeah so that's then you go up to the fifth floor and that's kind of where you start to become lucid, and that's where they physical therapists start to come in, and that's where once you're kind of ready, 
Like you start just lifting a leg one ten times, just lift your stump. 10 and, times. and you described that in your journal. It was like exhausting for you to yeah, do that, and it hurt. And what's making it? Is it because you've been laying there for so long? Is it because it's a movement that you haven't been able to do in a while? I or don't is it just know. All of the above. I would imagine a lot of that stuff down there is just swollen and painful. Uh, you know, it's. I think that's probably what it would be. And so, yeah, uh, it hurts so bad just to even move it at all. And so they start with that, and then eventually you get in your wheelchair, and it takes about 10 minutes for you to get into your wheelchair and take about four people to get you into your wheelchair because you're just, like, sliding off and you're just so sore. But, you know, eventually you get better, and I could – you know, I I made a big deal about the first day that I got in my wheelchair by myself. Mm -hmm. And then I would go for little rolls around the the floor, and somebody would have to, like, wheel my – my little IV pole, and I'd have to hang my catheter bag on the. I was so scared. I was, I was like, watch that tube. <laughs> Do not let that tube get caught into anything. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would I would just do a few laps around the ward, get out, and then when I was done, I'd go visit my buddy Daniel because he couldn't get out of bed yet, because he had. Uh, I don't I don't know why he couldn't get out of bed, but. He couldn't get out of bed, so I'd go in his room and hang out for a little while. So then, and and then, how long are, is it before you're thinking to yourself, okay, or what makes you start thinking, this is my game plan, this is where I'm going? Like, you see guys that are further along the process, and you say, okay, I see what that guy's doing. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm going to do that too. Well, I sent a little uh, iPhone message to Daniel who is still down still down on the fifth floor and my buddy took a little he's like why don't you say something to Daniel and so I said listen first step make a workout program to get back to where we were before to get on our feet again so it was immediate I was like we are going to just work out and we're going to get better and you know so they don't do a whole lot of prosthetics at Bethesda well they do now um, but they didn't back then and so the nurses would kind of have a general idea uh, of how the prosthetic stuff went and the physical therapist would know. But the major thing was the visits from Walter Reed. So the Wounded Warrior Battalion people would bring people that were further along in their recovery over to visit the guys that had just been freshly wounded. Mm-hmm. And so I got one of those visits. I don't remember there being a double above the knee amputee that came to see me that was in legs yet but they had a better idea and they would say look you know you're going to get over there and you're going to get your prosthetics and you're going to be able to walk again you're going to be able to run you're going to be able to do this and that and so at at that point I'm like oh so I'm not going to I don't have to be in a wheelchair forever oh okay you know so it was about at that point and then what do how did you develop your workout program? Well, uh, once I became lucid, I was doing pull-ups on my little triangle. <laughs> you know how they had the yeah, little triangle thing yeah. dangling down? Started getting after it. I wasn't doing – well, I wasn't doing pull-ups. I was probably doing like uh, horizontal rows yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. I was just like lifting myself up. Whenever the physical therapist couldn't come in and do her stuff with me, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to do – I'm just going to pull myself up on this thing. And so that was, I, and I kind of, I went off 
the therapist's um, experience for the for most of it in the in the beginning until I kind of got on my own because I don't you know they're they've been doing this for mm-hmm. nine years at that point so they had a lot of drills and strengthening exercises that I can do and and that kind of thing so I just kind of let them take the reins and just did whatever they said and then did it again um, but then once I got to a point where I was we're kind of where you see me now I'm walking around mm-hmm. and no problem that's when I started venturing into trying to do regular gym stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and I invented my own way of doing straight leg deadlifts so it's I strap myself to a pole and I cinch it down Check. and I just lean down and I do a straight leg deadlift as a because I can't squat right right yeah uh I thought this was a really cool uh, part of your journal that you wrote and you're talking about getting through that kind of stuff. So here we go back to the journal. It is easy to be motivated to succeed in the beginning of an endeavor and when you are close to the end. The most difficult part and the part where people quit is when they are in the thick of it and it is unclear whether they have the strength and stamina to make it the rest of the way. While I never actually doubted my ability to walk again during my recovery, I am certainly subject to the inner monologue rationalizing why it is okay to quit or to not push myself to the goal that I have written down on paper. One way I have recognized to aid in shutting that monologue the fuck up is celebrating milestones. The hardest part of working toward a goal is when we are either making slow progress or negative progress and having the patience and confidence to know that the improvements we make over the long periods as opposed to the short periods are what matter. Milestones are what remind us that we are making progress even if it isn't apparent every day. In rowing, I've heard of people that count strokes until the finish line using sets of 10. Personally, I like to count 250s for making up a race when I ran the nation's triathlon I picked points ahead of me to make it to and when I got there I'd pick a new point anything we can use to keep our minds from succumbing to the monologue will work not only in short short-term goals but also in long-term goals like graduating from college or learning to use prosthetics Great advice for anybody to yeah. pay attention to. Now you mentioned rowing there, mm-hmm. so this was no like uh, weekend row that you decided to do. This was you got after it. Yeah. So uh, how'd that come about? Um. So I was I was looking for that workout program. I knew at this point, hey, I'm alive. I'm gonna still try and have the best life possible, and so. I'm trying to get back what I what I lost, so to speak. And I used to like working out and going to the gym, getting after it. And so I'm I'm sitting there going, well, what's a new what's another way that I can work out now? Um. And so I started looking up. I forget what I looked up: disabled sports or disabled workout. I googled something. And Google getting after yeah, it. Google getting after <laughs> it. <laughs> and so the Paralympics comes up. 
know what the heck is the Paralympics. I know the Olympics. I don't know what the Paralympics is. Is that like the Special Olympics? And the answer to that question is no. And so the Paralympics is the Olympics for disabled people, for people with disabilities. So like, all right, well, I fit into that category. Let's see what sports they got. And I saw they had rowing. I saw, well, you know what? I used to, I used to hit the rowing machine when I was working out. Mm-hmm. Getting on the concept two. Yeah, the concept two, doing some sprints on that thing. That was pretty tough, and I want something that's tough. So, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna see. I'm gonna look into this rowing thing, and maybe I'll maybe I'll make the Paralympics one day. And this is when I was just got to the hospital, like my second week in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> not not real strong point in the patient's area, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to set yourself a goal right away. Jack. <laughs> you don't have something you're working towards, then you're just, you know, treading water. Um, and so, yeah, and, hey, a lot of things fell into place. Uh, there was a – I probably didn't go out and try and learn to row on the water f- until the next year. So I was – my main focus at that point was still learning the prosthetics getting my strength back. But once – I kind of got my strength back and I was re- I felt like I was ready to move on kind of outside of the therapy uh, angle on it. I looked up places where I could learn to row and just, I mean, it just so happened there was one in DC. And so I went down there and I learned. And I mean, I don't want to brag, but the guy said I was a natural. So uh it's like, well, maybe I can do this. And so I convinced the – they didn't have a rowing machine in the physical therapy clinic at the time. They had an elliptical. Mm-hmm. They had all sorts of equipment. But they didn't have a rowing machine. Hmm. So I convinced the clinic, whoever was running the clinic, to get a rowing machine for me so I could row. And then when I was training for the nation's triathlon, I, I convinced them to let me bring my bike in and and ride my bike in the clinic. So I had my own. I'm starting to build my own gym <laughs> inside the gym, and I convinced them to get a kettlebell for me and stuff. <laughs> um, and so I convinced them to let me uh, let me have that roll machine. And so a couple times a week, I would go down to the water and train on the water. The other times, I would just do some sprints on the on the rowing machine. And then it just kind of kept, I kept getting better and better. And this was 20, uh, 2011. So then the Paralympics were 2012. And now is there, is there like a specific coach that, yeah. that runs the, the, the rowing team? There isn't in some sports. There are, there's like, there's a head coach that's in charge of everybody and he'll train everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, my category in Paralympic rowing, it's pretty much you find your own coach and you show up at this race. And if you win that race, then you represent America in all their races for that year. Dang. How far is the row? It's a thousand meters. So what is that? Like it, it takes you a couple minutes, three minutes. Um, so rowing trunk and arms only is my category. So it would take me my best ever time on the erg was probably like three thirty-eight, I think. Um, and that's like puke level putting out. Yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then on the water, the best in a double, so two people. Um, my category, you have to have two people in the boat. 
was just right around four minutes. If you could do four minutes, then you had a shot at winning. And that's 1,000 meters too? It's 1,000 meters. So you're always going to be a little bit slower on the water. And you say it's four minutes, you said? Yeah, about four minutes. So it's like a gut, complete gut check. It's it's yeah. equivalent of sprinting like a the mile. Yeah, because you're going four minutes, right? Yeah. Four minute mile. I mean, it's it's no joke. It's a it's a tough it's a tough tough race. And where was the Paralympics that year? Uh, the Paralympics were in London in 2012, and so I was just getting ready for that. I was getting ready to retire. I needed something to do too, and just so happened that. My coach that at the time knew somebody else, knew this this other coach that had a female that was uh, looking for a partner, also a double above the amputee. And so my boat class is one guy, one girl. And so we met up, rode together, looked like we were a pretty good pair. And once I retired, moved down to Florida, started training for the Paralympics. How long did you have to train? So I got out in late December, so let's say call it January 1st, and I, we had the, the Paralympic final September 2nd or September 3rd. Okay, so you had a decent chunk of time about, to get Yeah, ready. good nine months. Of crushing yourself. Of, yeah, training twice a day, every day, or twice a day, six days a week, take off Sunday and just sprints, you know, technique, a lot of technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you I mean, have to do the technique in the water? Yeah. I mean, you can do it outside of the water a little bit, but it's really, you got to practice your technique in in the water. I'm sure it's like jujitsu. You yeah. just got to, it doesn't matter if, you, if you're if you doing like a, in a fake, fake scenario. You have, it doesn't really have the same effect unless you're doing it in the real thing. Yeah. So you get to England. And boom. Yeah. How many races is there in England? Is it just one race? No, luckily. <laughs> There's a couple races, so we had to win the trials race. Okay. Which was to find out who represented America. We won that. Then we had to go qualify our boat for the Paralympics. And so we had to go to Serbia about a, maybe a month after winning the trials to qualify the boat. So we won that race, qualified our boat, and then... Paralympics, you show up and you do your heat. And then if you win that heat... Is it how many boats are in a heat? Uh, six. Dang. So okay. there were 12 boats total, six in each heat, two Got heats. It. So if you win that heat, you automatically go to the final. If you don't win that heat, you got to go what's called the repechage. Mm-hmm. Stands for second chance in French. And uh, you have to come first or second in that. So we won our repechage. We lost our heat to the Chinese, which still makes me so mad. And uh, we won our repechage, so we were in the final, and we started the final and dead last. And just slowly, over the course of the race, this was our race plan. We kind of wanted to start slow and build. Slowly, we just rode in one boat, and the next boat, and the next boat, until we got to the end, and we're about six inches between us and the great British boat, the home team. Oh, Everybody's snap. cheering for the home team. <laughs> and so third place gets a medal, fourth place, you don't get anything. Right. You get nothing, yeah. So 
and we're doing our final sprint, and then we cross the line, and I don't know. I I wasn't looking over there. Mm-hmm. My forearms were numb. I was just trying to hold on to the oars, and then it comes up on this little board, you know, first place, China, second place, France, and then there's just this long pause. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking over there. And then it goes third place, USA, and I'm like, Boom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you look at the video, it's literally like the length of one of these knives. No kidding. Yeah, that close. Point two, point two seconds Dang. between Dang. them and us. That's crazy. It was so close. So, did you meet anyone while you were on that event right well, there? Oh, yes, I did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me you met someone over on that event. Oh, uh, well. Um, so, I'll tell you. When we were first got there and we were training, we were doing, we would go out, we were probably there a good week beforehand, so we'd go out and train on the lake and continue our training, get used to the area. My partner, my my rowing partner and I were watching the other teams. And then there's another boat class called the four, so it's four people. And I saw this great British four row by. And there was this gorgeous blonde (laughs) in the bow of the four. And I said, I just bit my lip. (laughs) I was like, that's a good looking chick. And, you know, I didn't, I never expected to meet her or anything Mm -hmm. because, you know, we're not racing against each other and she's from another team. And you kind of, you know, until the race is over, you got to be. You're keeping it professional. Sure. She, She. even though she was super high, <laughs> she was very high. <laughs> but you know, and she she uh, she'll uh, tell me back when she told me what well, she saw me around. I was like, because yeah. I was in, I was just in serious Marine Corps mode. Just yeah, don't talk to anybody. You had business to take yeah. care of. Although you know. she was pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, racing's over. We're back in the athletes' village. It's time to get after it <laughs> the other kind of getting <laughs> yeah, after yeah, it yeah, yeah. there's a casino outside the athletes village so uh the american contingent goes out to this casino starts we're part i'm still at this point i'm still kind of in like serious mode right. it takes a couple of days to get out of it you know serious serious mode mm-hmm. uh still a little bit pissed that we lost mm-hmm. you know to china and france mm-hmm. it's like the two people the two countries that my buddies were like, don't lose to China or France. <laughs> <laughs> they were taking shots like every two fit. They were following on at home and like oh, every two fifty yeah, would yeah. like take a shot. <laughs> they woke up like so early in the morning. Um, so we're out there. Then the the British team comes in. The four, they just won gold, right? And they're all they're all happy. So we're the only two groups that speak English, right? So uh, bonus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our two groups, you know, kind of end up together. And it took it took them a while to uh, get me to out of my shell, yeah, you know, because I was like, you know, still kind of on my guard. I had, this was the first, the, maybe the second time I'd ever traveled outside of America for anything besides deployments. Yeah, I'd never traveled outside of America. But Serbia was the first time. England was the second time. Damn. So I was kind of still on my guard right. a little bit. But they started feeding me Fosters, mm-hmm. lightened up, <laughs> and then just so happened the the gorgeous blonde I saw was there. So, hey, 
you guys know how charming I am. So <laughs> yeah. Charmed her. Well, you at least fooled her. <laughs> <laughs> so she, I'm sure the alcohol helped, you know, but uh, charmed her, and now we're married. So That's awesome. That's awesome. After four years of long-distance relationship, because she kept rowing, she, she actually defended her uh, gold medal in Rio. And did it again? Yeah. Got gold again. again. So we, we did about uh, – we didn't get together right away. We, we did uh, – Long distance for about three years. She living in England and I was uh-huh. living in America. But uh, finally got her over here. We're married. Yep. Her name's Pam. Nice. Pam. Well, obviously I have a certain affinity for British ladies as well. Yeah. It's <laughs> pretty well known. Uh, now you mentioned real quickly tr- you were training for a triathlon in there somewhere too? Yeah. So the people at the clinic, it was, uh, I mean – it was a team effort, everybody. So there were other other amputees in there. And, I mean, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Dan Knossen, the yeah. Navy SEAL, yeah. that was there for a year. Awesome guy. Before Stud. me. And, and Paralympian as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Paralympian in the biathlon. Um, he was my my idol, I guess, for when I first got there because he was – pretty much done with therapy he was about to get out he was walking everywhere on his legs carrying backpack around and he was almost i mean the the exact same injury as you i mean above the knee double above the knee yeah Yeah. and so i could see him from when i was just sitting in a wheelchair right like all right that is it's possible yeah because i'm seeing it with my own two eyes it is possible and so and he's a stud. And yeah, so yeah, if you want to, if you want to try and be like anybody, it's be like Dan. Because, yeah. um, and so that's kind of the the environment that they had there at Walter Reed was. You could ask somebody that had been there before, tips, tricks, anything like that. And so, I saw Dan, and I was asking him stuff and just watching how he did stuff, and then eventually he left. And I kind of noticed, you know, I am now, there's new guys coming in, Got and it. I'm now that person that has been there. And so I need to step into that role and offer advice and work harder than anybody else in the clinic and show people what's going on and show people what's possible. And so the therapist would always be, hey, you want, who wants to run the Army 10-miler? Who wants to do this triathlon? They'd always be getting offers. They'd always be getting slots and races because – People love having wounded warriors out there. It's a, it's, they make a big deal of it. They get, let them go off first and everything. So, yeah. So, and, and every time they ask me if I could, if I wasn't doing anything else that day, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And so they're like, you want to do the nation's triathlon? It's Olympic distance triathlon. And there's like two people doing it. And, and no other, it's like a single below the knee amputee doing it. And that's it. And you're a double above knee amputee. You want to do it? Yeah. I do. And Check. it just because it just so happened at the time I was learning how to ride a bicycle again, mm. normal bicycle. So which, you figure you're learning how to ride a bike, might as well do a triathlon. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you got to give <laughs> one of the things that's going to drive you to push yourself is having skin in the game, having something to lose, having something Check. to risk. So if you say to everybody in the clinic, I'm going to do the nation's triathlon. And you don't do it, yeah. you're an idiot. Yeah. You're a loser. Yeah. What do you, how long is a is a Olympic triathlon? What uh, are the distances? Olympic distance. The swim is fifteen hundred meters. The bike is forty kilometers. 
and the run is 10 kilometers. Check. Um, luckily for me, because I was not that good at swimming, luckily for me, the swim got canceled that year because there was a huge storm. There's a ton of debris in the Potomac. Uh-huh. So we didn't do the swim, but we did the bike and the run. And, yeah, so it, I was I was relearning how to ride a bicycle. Nobody had ever done that before in, in the history of Walter Reed, double above the knee amputee trying to ride a bicycle. And I had figured it out, and I kind of wanted to put it to use. You know, mm-hmm. like I finally figured this thing out. Um, and so, oh, what better way to do it than do the nation's triathlon? <laughs> and so it was like, you know, a baptism by fire in in a way. And so it took me like four hours to do the whole thing. Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed having done it. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm just wondering at what point you made the brilliant decision that you were going to ride a freaking bicycle across the United States of America. Well. Which was your next whatever freaking psychotic idea you got. Again. Where'd I, that come from? I had just learned how to ride the bike. Mm-hmm. And I'm going... <laughs> I got to do something with it. I can't make it just this pointless thing. I learned, okay, I did it, and now I'm never going to do it again. I was like, you know what might be fun? It's just like riding my bike across the country at some point in my life. And this is when I have, I'm not even, I'm still in the hospital. I just learned how to ride the bike. I should do something like ride, ride my bike across the country or something like that. <laughs> you know, something, something cool like that. And... I was rowing. I didn't do it right away because I, I, had, I had made the commitment to do the rowing. Right. So I was like, I'm going to do rowing, but eventually I will do this cross-country bike ride. And so I did another year of rowing after that. I I took the time to kind of plan it out how I wanted to do it. And so I took another year of rowing and then finished world championships that year in fourth. Um, and about a month later, drove up to Maine, started riding. <laughs> This is in October, and, and so what was the what was that all? Uh, what was the what did that day to day look like? Uh, so I had a box truck, a U-Haul box truck. I bought like a used two hundred thousand miles U-Haul box truck. Check. My, <laughs> I, put, I laid down some carpets in the back. Check. Um, had a couple cots, a couple sleeping bags, supplies. <laughs> and my little brother, who was about to turn 18. Check. Uh, rogered up to drive. Good to go. That's all you need right there. <laughs> Box truck. Water. Two cots, carpet, and a little brother. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't really train much. For it. What I did was I made sure that my prosthetics fit correctly and I was able to ride the bike. That's all I really did. I didn't you know, go out and ride a hundred miles or anything, any kind of formal training for it. Yeah. Cause I figured be... what is the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just start. And the <laughs> beginning is the training for the finish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sure. the day to day would be wake up probably six, seven o'clock, you know, drive out to wherever I was starting for the day. Cause mm-hmm. you couldn't, you can't just like stop and then yeah. pull over. So we'd have to like drive the truck somewhere park it in a church parking lot or mm-hmm. a fire department parking lot and then uh start yeah so riding. you don't get apprehended by the cops yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, so the first time so i had i was right i'd be riding my bike and then my brother would be kind of half on half off the road right. and I, I picked a route that we didn't have you know not super busy roads so i wouldn't get in too many people's way until i got the pacific coast highway and then people were super pissed <laughs> and uh 
at one point, this cop, the, fir- the first cop I encountered, pulls over in front of us. I'm like, all right, here we go. He's mm. going to tell me to stop. He rides over. And then he gets out and he's like, I just want to shake your hand, man. <laughs> it's like, phew. Okay. <laughs> nice. This is how it's going to go. This awesome. is, so I'm going to get the cops love me. Um, and so I wake up, start riding probably around 7.38. I might eat breakfast beforehand. Um, probably ride. Yeah, I would do 30 miles a day. So I just break that up however mm-hmm. I felt for the day. Right. Take breaks, hop in the back of the truck, sit around for a while. And run, I'd ride 30 miles. And then wherever I finished, 30 miles, I might go a little bit further for a better pulling off point. Stop, get in the truck, drive off to wherever we might be able to park the truck. And then spend the night in the truck. And then uh, drive back out to that spot the next day, do it again. <laughs> Luckily for me, a lot of hotels started to offer us nights to sleep. So we were really only sleep in the truck for the first month. And then after that, we were mostly in hotels. And this was like a six-month journey, right? Six months, October to, October to April. So, oh, so you did it through the wintertime. Yeah. You ever heard of the polar vortex? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> no, no, what is it? It was polar vortex it was, it was like this freezing uh, temperatures that came down and, and like attacked the nation with cold. <laughs> they called it the polar vortex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded very threatening. It's, it's, one, yeah. step hi- it does, it's yeah. one step higher than a Sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> Dig it. Uh, 5,180 miles yep. in the wintertime every day for 180 days. Um, you talk about fortitude in your journal, and I'm going to read it. It was through, it was through the true purpose of the Marine Corps that I became what I am today, and it is that, it is that, and that is the act of fighting the battles of the United States. It is through the preparation for and the fighting of America's wars that Marines gain their fine edge and an idea of the true meaning of courage, spirit, tenacity, altruism, and brotherhood. After having been imbued with the essential qualities ascribed to Marines in boot camp, it is up to the individual Marine and his leadership, all the way from the fire team leader to the commandant, to make him the ideal tool for the Corps. And there's no better place than a war to do this. It was during my two deployments that I learned what it means to be courageous. Almost on a daily basis, my fellow Marines and I would be subjected to situations with high potential for danger and situations with infinite, unknowable, possible outcomes. The dangerous and unpredictable nature of these conditions elicits fear, nervousness, and uncertainty in all people. However, without fail, When the time came to strap on our gear and proceed forth into these conditions, we did it with no hesitation because it was what we needed to do. To me, that is courage. I learned it from the example set by my leaders and my compatriots, and when it was my turn, I endeavored to teach others by my own example. My favorite among the many mantras of the Marine Corps is adapt and overcome. It is my favorite because it embodies the spirit and tenacity that Marines must possess in order to be the world's greatest warfighting force. 
to Marines, accomplishment of their mission is of the utmost importance, above that of their own lives, and the ability to adapt and overcome is key. The idea is straightforward. Change whatever you need to in order to become what is required to transcend an obstacle. If there is no bridge over a river, a Marine will swim. If there is a wall in front of us, we will blow it apart. If there is an enemy on a hill that we want, we will remove him. Marines do not stop until they have accomplished their mission, regardless of any monkey wrench that gets thrown into their plan. They will change their plan plan a thousand times if it need be until what needs to be done is done. And then they will move on to the next mission. It was these two qualities that kept me, that allowed me to keep fighting after I was wounded. My plan of accomplishing something with my life and making my life as good as possible was met with obstacles and monkey wrenches. But since I had already learned these lessons, bypassing these obstacles and moving on was easy and natural. The brotherhood that the Marines share is the defining feature that initially attracted me to the Marine Corps. And over the course of two deployments, I experienced it to its fullness. The reason that I was able to be courageous and adapt and overcome was because of the men that stood beside me doing the same thing. And it is because we were experiencing war and hardship together that we go grew close enough that I cared for them more than I cared for myself and would sacrifice my safety for their well-being even if it meant being extinguished. And although it never needed to be said, I knew this was reciprocated. To me, this is the definition of brotherhood and selflessness And from my having been part of such a relationship is why I am loyal and put others before myself as if it were a default setting. Without the Marine Corps, I have no idea where I would be or what I would be like. All I can say for sure is that I am what I am now, due in large part to what I was taught and what I experienced during my five years in the Marine Corps. Yeah, awesome. If there's anything that the Marine Corps teaches you, it is brotherhood. It is endurance, how to endure situations you don't want to have to be in (laughs) uh whether it's humping around with a pack or fighting in afghanistan iraq or if it's sitting in the back of a seven ton getting drenched in rain and then having to set up a tent blah 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 it teaches you those things and so i already knew all this stuff Mm -hmm. i was good at it by the time i became an amputee and then I got even better at it once I was an amputee, even more experience. And then so that led into 
being able to endure whatever I had to for the bike ride. And I think the slogan slogan for the Wounded Warrior Regiment in the Marine Corps is, I don't know if this is, it's Latin, I don't know if it's, I'm pronouncing it right, it's etium in pugna, which is still in the fight. And, you know, I'm not still in the main fight that's going on in Iraq or Afghanistan. I've been taken out of that fight. But the overall fight, I'm still in that. I'm still a representative of America. I'm still a representative of Marines. I'm dedicating myself to help my brothers that are struggling or come back wounded. I'm still in that portion of the fight. And, I mean, just remember, you just have to remember that, that slogan, just stay, stay in the fight, just keep fighting. Or obviously you're staying in the fight. And I, I, you know, I'm, again, reading through your journal stuff um, is awesome. And there's a bunch of different things that I wanted to pull out. And obviously I can't read the whole damn thing. Right. Maybe I could, but I'll (laughs) leave that for you. Uh, But one of the things, you know, I'm always thinking that what, you know, what can I pull out that I think will be really helpful to other people? And. I thought that this thing that you wrote right here was just something that can be used by by anybody, especially people that are facing tough situations, which as you just mentioned, you are pretty dang good at dealing (laughs) with tough situations. And I think this gives a little insight into that. So here we go, back to your journal. The Kubler-Ross model explains the stages by which an individual grieves for a lost intimate. The five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. In this case, it could be said, I was grieving for myself, the former me that had died in Sangin. Since I had a natural understanding of conservation of energy and an awareness of the time required to reach my goal, I instinctively skipped the first four steps and proceeded to the acceptance portion of the process. I had decided that to spend my limited energy resources on denial, anger, bargaining, and depression would be a pointless waste and would be better left off of my itinerary. I wanted to be able to expend as much energy as I could toward my goal, which would not only allow me to reach it faster, but would improve the quality of my success. The sooner I had accepted my situation, the sooner I could get to where I wanted to be. Having one's legs amputated above the knee is categorically a negative experience. If I hadn't had the right mindset afterward, the rest rest of my life could have also become a negative experience. Fortunately, I was able to react to the loss by accepting the negative energy from that occurrence and using it to open doors for myself in order to be sure that my life would remain a positive experience. No matter who you are, whether you are healthy or ill, injured or able-bodied, everyone's main purpose in life is to make it as good as possible. This is an unchanging objective for all people, no matter what happens. 
Thus, now that I was a double above the knee amputee, I needed to figure out a way to keep my life enjoyable. With this in mind, I researched the Paralympics to see if I could participate, which led to a bronze medal at the 2012 Games. Not only that, I accepted people into my life who have enriched it beyond what I could have imagined. From the experiences associated with sports, I have learned lessons that have and will continue to make me a better person. Lessons that I can pass on to others in the future. It was in this way that I was able to transform the negative experience of having lost the lower part of my legs into the positive experience and energy of participating in a sport and all that has accompanied it. If you are ill or injured, use it as a way to discover a new hobby or career. If someone is rude to you and makes you angry, use the anger to fuel a workout. If someone you know has a terminal illness, use it as an opportunity to make a difference in their life and in the world. The most important part of transforming energy from negative to positive is being aware of opportunities as they are presented and having the courage to seize them. Energy is all around us, constantly fueling and transforming. It will affect us in ways we cannot, be, we cannot predict. Be a person that uses energy intelligently instead of wasting it. I like to say, use the weight. And I kind of analogize it. I like to lift weights. I'm sure you guys can probably tell. Huh? I like to analogize it with maybe like a strict press. So the weight on the bar is whatever. Girlfriend broke up with you, whatever possible issue you're having. And you can hold that bar on your shoulders, and you can just leave it there, and eventually start to hurt. And then eventually, if you leave it there long enough, you'll just be on the ground with that weight on your chest. You can't move anymore. Or when you have that weight on the bar and it's on your shoulders... You shoulder press it, and then you do it again, and you do it again and again, and then you let your body adapt, and next time you try and lift that weight, it's nothing. You can do that weight easily. I can handle that, no problem. And then you can handle even more weight. And then when you get good at that, you seek out the weight. You purposefully try and make things harder for yourself. So that you can just become even stronger and even stronger. And you embrace that and you start to enjoy it a little bit. And so, I mean, I think that's what I was trying to say there. I think you said it. Not only did you say it, (laughs) but uh, you actually are living that currently at this time, seeking out more, uh, I guess maybe I, w- I would even go so far as to say stupid things to do. Cause you're <laughs> so the next challenge that you put in front of yourself is the thing that you're about to do right now. And I've never heard of a challenge like this before, but you're going to do a month of marathons. Yeah. Um, so these things are only stupid or crazy if I fail. <laughs> <laughs> Bike ride's not crazy because I did it. If I... <laughs> 
if I had failed, then people could say it's crazy. So yeah, if I yeah. fail this one, then it's stupid. Um, no, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> the, you you going out there and making these things happen, you know, it's, it's awesome. Whether you finish or not, no matter what you do, the fact that you're putting these hardcore challenges in front of yourself is it's it's unbelievable yeah so yeah all this stuff that i've written down and what we've talked about all the wisdom i've been able to to gain through my injury and through being in the marine corps i think this the month of marathons i'm about to do this and everything else that i that i try and do i'm trying to be an example because there's so many people out when like when i was trying to learn the to ride how to bike again i didn't know anybody that had ever done it before until I saw somebody that had done it and it just made everything once you realize it's possible it makes it so much easier <laughs> because you know it's it can be done and so I want to be an example for people to look at and they see me and they say well they might not be trying to run 31 marathons in 31 days in 31 different cities or ride their bike across the country but they can say, <clears throat> there's a double above knee amputee that ran 31 marathons in 31 days. I can probably go walk on the treadmill. So, and if I just want to be an example of that, and I want to be an example of all of these lessons that I've learned. A person that uses the weight instead of lets it destroy their life. Somebody that stays in the fight, keeps fighting no matter what. That's what I'm trying to do. I want to serve to show people what they can do, and especially, you know, wounded veterans and people that might be struggling with what they saw. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that my mind is clear. I had a grade three concussion. That's it. No traumatic brain injury, no post-traumatic stress, nothing like that. And so I want to show civilians and veterans alike that it is possible to have a traumatic experience and come through and be fine and not have not have to suffer from post-traumatic stress that just overwhelms you Um, because I think in society these days it's almost becoming expected that you're going to go to war and you're going to come back and so a lot of people might end up just being, well, I'm supposed to have post-traumatic stress, so I'm going to manifest it in myself, or they let it get worse, or they don't, they don't fight it, and they just let it happen. And so I want to be an example of somebody that uses their experience and it just goes and has this terrible experience and, you know, don't make a big deal about it. And part of you doing that is running 31 freaking marathons in 31 days. Yeah. So when do you start? Uh, so I'm going to start. In 31 different cities. In 31 different also. cities. Okay. So my first city, London. Um, London on October 12th. And then I'm going to fly to Philadelphia. So basically the way it's going to work, I'll run in a city, probably take about the whole thing I'll take breaks during the during the run, so it'll probably the whole thing will probably take five and a half six hours to mm-hmm. to do. I'll I'll do the run on my own, just like in a park or on a trail, out and backs loops. I'll do it on a four hundred meter track if I have to. 
um, do that, get in my RV, drive to the next place, spend the night there. We upgraded from a box truck yeah. with the with the well, cots in the back. Well, the wife's going to be coming along, so oh, okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. she wasn't going to be. In no, the box I'm going to have a crew for this one. I got my wife Pam is going to be my team leader. She's uh, she's just doing so much stuff. She's a team leader in everything, every job that you could possibly think of. She's doing it. And my mom is coming because she's a massage therapist, so she's gonna nice. give me a massage, and I'm gonna have a driver, not my brother this time. I think I blew him out. <laughs> <laughs> I blew him out the first time, uh, but I'm gonna have a driver, and so we're gonna all hop in the RV, drive to so from Philadelphia to New York, run in New York, repeat until I go all the way around. I'm gonna end November 11th, Veterans Day, DC, <laughs> on the National Mall, and and. Your goal, obviously, is to show people and lead people and set an amazing example. And on top of that, you're gonna earn you're gonna you're gonna earn money yeah. for some real specific charities that that you believe in and stand behind. And what are those charities? Yeah. So my goal, my main goal, is obviously the to be the example and all these kind of grand uh, objectives. But you know, how do you really? You can't quantify that really. So the way that I'm quantifying it is I'm going to be raising money for three veterans charities that I've had personal contact with that have helped me during my recovery. Um, and they are the Semper Fi Fund, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, and the Coalition to Salute America's Heroes. And so that's how I'm going to be. That's also how I'm going to be showing veterans that America loves them because that is something that's been made abundantly clear to me everywhere I go, mm-hmm. like all the time. I think I did three breakfasts in a row where somebody paid for it anonymously. I get thanked all the time. And so if they're saying that stuff to me, it's obvious that they love all veterans, and I'm trying to help connect that, just reduce that gap between the military and the civilian worlds and get them to, to talk and and show the show veterans that they're coming back to a country that appreciates them and loves them more than pretty much any other thing. And so I think by the donations and by having people come out and run with me and show me support, then that kind of helps to sh- to prove that to people. So where can we go donate? What's the what's the link? Robjonesjourney.com robjonesjourney.com there's a there's a donate link there and you can also see my schedule there and I'll have details of where I'm going to be and it's the whole country it's east coast west coast yep, middle of the way, country all the way around as far as you can drive in a day to get yeah. to a next spot to run 26.2 yeah, miles like my longest drive is 12 14 hours and that happens maybe once or twice so mm-hmm. it's they're all pretty close to each other in major cities and yeah you can go to my website <clears throat> robjonesjourney.com donate there see my schedule RSVP that you're going to show up you don't have to if you but if you want to that's cool I'll have all the details there and then social medias all at robjonesjourney awesome I it's awesome man it's just awesome and you're freaking awesome <laughs> and I grabbed a couple this a little short piece from your journal Again, this is something that I just thought is is just going to be helpful to me when I read it 
and will be helpful to anybody that that listens hears or reads this and here we go back to your journal the conscious is in control of forming habits every time we are faced with a decision of whether to quit slow down and rationalize a reason why that's okay or keep pressing forward one of those habits is strengthened the more times we choose to push on the stronger that habit will become it takes time and purposeful effort for these habits to become ingrained but once a person develops them in the gym doing something as simple as choosing to keep rowing hard for another minute they can apply what they have learned to the rest of their lives they will learn to take the harder path so that they are challenged more they will learn to put extra effort into daily tasks who you are depends entirely on your influences and the level of effort that is put into forging yourself into what you desire to be and that's awesome yeah i mean every every decision you make either gets you closer to your goal or moves you further away and i'm not saying i never make the decisions that move you to the left move you further away i'm human just like everybody else yeah uh yeah definitely yeah you know you know we were hanging out yesterday and I was like I was busy I'm like hey man I gotta go so in that busyness you know what I had for dinner last night MREs no I didn't have MREs that's not happening okay no my entire dinner was a leftover piece of a Caesar salad and a giant mint chocolate chip milkshake I, I actually said to my wife, I was like, make me, because I was working, and I, you know, it's, you can't stop and eat when you're trying to work. And so I just said, can you make me just a giant mint chocolate chip milkshake? Now, I didn't get closer to my, you know, Goal. physical goals, no. but I got a lot of work done. Yeah, I got an extra, go. whatever, 28 minutes worth of work done because I didn't stop to eat dinner. Yeah, yeah. you got to take the wins <laughs> with the losses. I dig it. And it's all just about, you know, making that. It's like you plot your progress on a graph, and you're gonna have it's as long it's gonna go up, and then it's gonna go down a little bit, and then it's mm-hmm. gonna go up, and then it's gonna go down. So as long as that trend is upward, then you know you really have nothing to worry about. But if that thing starts to level off and then you go the other way, then you need to ask yourself some questions. And you need to give yourself some honest answers. Yeah, you know, we had a conversation not too long ago. Uh, a guy asked about jujitsu belts mm-hmm. and said, you know. I understand that you shouldn't pursue because in jujitsu it's like hey you shouldn't just like go to get a belt uh, you go because you want to get better and you right. want to learn and and he said you know I understand that you shouldn't just do it to get the belts but it's good to mark your progress and figure your progress out and I was and that's true and that, that's what you're saying like yeah and I, I've talked about that too um, you know I, I related to shooting where right. when you when you focus on the target your your vision gets blurry and so you lose track of the long-term 
the long-term goal or the long-range target. So that's why we focus on our front sight because we can keep that little thing that's right in front, three feet in front of us yeah. on our rifle. You can keep that in focus. So that's what you focus on. And every once in a while, if you start that, maybe that gets a little blurry. Well, then you look at your long-term targeting because that daily grind will beat you down too. Yeah. And if you just if it's the daily grind, the daily grind, the daily grind beating you down, and then you 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 forget what your goal was in the first place. But so every once in a while, yeah, you got to look up at your long-term goal and say, I want to be doing this or achieve that or whatever. I want to do thirty-one marathons. See, I'll, some people would have picked. Like February, sure. right? We'll yeah. do 28 marathons in 28 <laughs> days. Yeah. You're, you're going to the full 31. Uh, that's the difference right there. Yeah, yeah. If I want to make it, if I want to make these points, yeah. that's why I rode my bike from Maine to Southern California. I was sitting there going, yeah, I could, I could ride Florida to San Diego. It would be technically be all the <laughs> yeah. way across. Yeah. But technically, but there would be that but, <laughs> and I don't want any buts associated with anything that I do. I don't want anybody to have any reason to say, "Oh yeah, Rob Jones, he ran thirty-one marathons in thirty-one days." But he could have done thirty-two. You got to do a good job on on your social media when you're when you go out on this thing. You got to document this thing and post it so people yeah. can like. I'm hoping. So, I'm working with um, Sports Illustrated. I think they're gonna do a video. Nice. I heard of them. Um, yeah. Good outlet. You've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> do they do good videos? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 a discriminating judge of videos right there, Charles. <laughs> so yeah, I plan and like you know I documented the uh, bike ride. That's that documentary is on my yeah. website too. Yeah. So yeah, I do try and document these things and uh, just in case people don't happen to catch it while I'm doing it, they can go back and and use that as their example for for what I've done, they can find out that way. Yeah. Well, um, I know you get stuff done and you hammer out your daily tasks. We're gonna let Echo hammer out his daily <laughs> task right now. <laughs> Technically <laughs> weekly. <Sports> time. Weekly <laughs> task, weekly <laughs> task. Yeah, I do, I extra respect on the weightlifting analogy. Oh, thank I you. think like weightlifting and exercising in general like is like the perfect analogy for oh, yeah. most things, you know? Oh yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, I mean, I could go into it, but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah that like is, it was good. That, that is an ab- an outstanding analogy. Yeah, of thank you. Like, hey, that weight's on you. Yeah. You're either going to use it to get better or you're going to let it bury you in the ground. Yeah. The choice is yours. What are you going to do? Yeah, and yeah. like, and it goes to show, we talk about this sometimes, where you can take, a, let's say, a random person, right, and you'd be like, hey, let's go to the gym. And there, there can be literally opposite reactions if you get two different people, so... One guy can be like, hell yeah, let's go to the gym. Yeah. I'm going to work out. I'm gonna get I need to get in shape. Good. You know, it's this thing. Or you can get someone and be like, that's the worst thing in the world. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't. Yeah. I don't, that, like, that's hard. And yeah. it hurts. Even the next day it hurts. You yeah. know, so meanwhile, it's the same exact activity, by the way. Yeah. You know? So you can look at it in those two different ways. You know what else is messed up? Is there's activities that are also good for you. And move you in a direction that you want to be moving, mm-hmm. but maybe, like, let's say the guy, you can, let, we can, I'll give you a real good example. Sure. You take a meathead, right? Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, you want to go to the gym? What does the meathead say? Hills, yes, <laughs> let's go get it. <laughs> but then you say to that same guy who seems all motivated and fired up to improve himself, yeah. and you say, hey, let's go read a book and try and, 
you know understand better this concept of whatever yeah and what do they say then eh, mm. i'd rather go to the gym yeah yeah, yeah. so it's interesting yeah the weight much. the weight isn't necessarily just a physical weight right it's pressing up against whatever it is that's going to improve you yeah and you can either use it to beat you down mm-hmm. or you can use it to make yourself better yeah and again just as a concept right i think the exercise and weightlifting and like your body just kind of figuratively can demonstrate just so much yeah. you know that applies so much oh, and yeah. you especially feel that way about curls is that what i'm hearing <laughs> yeah <laughs> depends on the thing but yeah <laughs> generally speaking <laughs> anyway speaking of curls wait should i go into this now you your daily task, yeah, yeah, your yeah. weekly task. Weekly I task. think you should. Yeah, yeah, might I as well. Right. Well, I got Rob Jones here to listen. Right. So yeah. what up? I can't I mean, wait to hear the support. <laughs> the support. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Live, so, you get to witness the support live. It's an honor <laughs> to watch watch Echo do his work, <laughs> his life's work. His life's work, <laughs> right here. I support you, boha. After this, we can go to my house. You can watch me edit a video. <laughs> <laughs> so so dope, you know. Anyway. Made in America, Origin. That's the company. OriginMaine.com. You started in Maine. Yeah. Bike right across the street. Yeah. That's where this place is. We just got back. What last week? Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Week and a half. Whatever. Yeah, that's a cool spot. You know, he has a um, side note. He has a, like this. I think it was on like the History Channel or something mm-hmm. like that, where it was kind of like a show. And you know the story he told about getting he got this the loom right where he got it d- it, didn't it, actually make. Right, right. They, they like came and filmed some stuff, but yeah. they didn't produce it. Yeah, he showed it to me, but it was oh, yeah? great because when he's telling the story, I'm like, man, that took it took like to eight hours or something or more than it that took more than that. Yeah, yeah, like to get it, and it's this big thing, and it kind of showed it. They were there for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Dope. Moving yeah. the looms. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. You know what a loom is? No. Okay, that and me neither. And that's yeah. this is he asked me. He's like, you know what a loom is? I was like, loom. I've heard that like once. Yeah, it sounds with familiar. Fruit right? of the loom, right? <laughs> yeah. And when you think about oh, it, it makes sense okay. because fruit of the loom is like right, it's the fabric, big, you know. It has all it, the strings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it makes yeah. fabric. Anyway, so when they say made in America, in this case, it's for real made in America. They get the cotton from America. They make it with a loom. Yeah. With looms, in with looms that uh, this guy Pete Roberts up at Origin, which we're in league now with Origin. Yeah. But we went up into old mills because all the mills up there, a lot of them shut down. Yeah. And actually... I think all, all of them, them shut them, down, yeah. and these were these were these were factories that were like half a million square feet, and they were filled with looms and filled with production and filled with American workers, and it all went overseas. And he went in and literally bought a loom um, for like I think they, I think it was like three thousand dollars. The the cost of the scrap metal that it was worth. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, took it. Hired some old timers that knew still knew how to work. It brought them back to work, and then started making clothes and well, making jujitsu geese is what he yeah. started with. But but we're you know got everything being lined yeah. up to get made. So. And that loom, they only had that one because they were going to put it in a museum or yeah. something. Yeah, they were so literally like, going to yeah. take that that one loom that they had left, and they were going to put make it a museum yeah. piece. Oh, historical cool. product. <laughs> you know that's that's so awesome because you see, there's so many people out there now that are like oh. Our country has so many problems. Our country has so many problems. We need to do this. We need to do that. And or they say somebody needs yeah. to do this. Somebody needs to yeah, do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, hey, yeah. why don't you? And here's a guy that's doing that. Yeah, so that's Pizza, awesome. To hear. Guess what? Boom. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you can, it's interesting, too, when we went there, you can tell he's into it. He's like, he, we're driving up there. He's Bro. talking about how yarn is all made and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, hey, I got I to calm down because yeah. I'm, I'm getting too <laughs> the into thing it. The thing is, you, you, you don't even I need it. to say he's into it because yeah, yeah. he went yeah. out and bought a broken, rusty loom <laughs> and refurbished it. it and moved yeah. it into a factory that he built on his own property. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And so, it yeah. shows, too. Like, the geese, um, like, you might do jiu-jitsu right today. Yeah. The, the geese are like, they're, they're cool. You know, martial arts geese or whatever, but he brings, like, this added, like, element to it well because so, he specifically designs them for yeah for jiu-jitsu yeah it's not the kind where it's like hey let me get a gi blank from overseas or whatever and yeah. then like embroider my logo on it so it's kind of like the same thing you don't you don't have much innovation freedom with a physical product he yeah. does so so it's like i took i was rolling the other day gi <laughs> whatever i take off the top and you're left with just the pants so the pants are like they're by um like sizes, you know, you wear a 36. Or yeah. In regular stuff, it's just the like numbers, A1, A2, A3, A4, A5, A6. This is like fitted to you, right? So I'm wearing the pants and they feel kind of like normal pants, you yeah. know? And uh, it was Greg and Juan. They're like, they were noticing. <laughs> <laughs> you almost don't mind getting choked out by Uncle Charles. This is so sweet. <laughs> Here's the thing, my streak every day, and I wear it every day, I have two, two tops. I wear it every day, and the streak is still alive. Every single time, someone asks, "Like, what up with that gi?" Like, mm. oh, let me let me see that. <laughs> They're yeah. dope. They're the way that fabric dope. is woven is legit. Yeah, it's legit. Yeah, and see these shorts I have on right now. Oh, I should. Yeah. I kind of, in a way, shouldn't mention these because Pete's like, "No, we're not making those shorts because they don't make these shorts." We will make them. Oh, okay, I've worn these three days in a row. By the way. <laughs> oh, nice. That's yeah. what that smell was. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I washed them once. <laughs> But yeah, they're my favorite shorts. They're made out of the same material as one of the one of the geese. Yeah, they look so nice. Yeah, I spilled some eggs on it. And you know how it leaves them? These shorts are black, by the way. Uh-huh. So you know how you when you spill eggs or I don't know, I was feeding my son yogurt and stuff, and it spilt on it. Uh-huh. So you just take a brush, like you know, like a brush you find under your sink or whatever, put some water, and I scrubbed it. You can't do that on like your shorts because it'll start to wear it out, you know. Yeah. But a gee is tough. It's supposed to be tough. Yeah. Boom, did it. You don't <laughs> even have to wash it. Anyway, sorry, you can't get the shorts. Don't get too fired up. We'll make them. We'll make them. Yeah. So stand by for that. Nonetheless, jujitsu geese, all kinds of rash guards, and even like like regular clothes, shirts, hoodies, and whatnot. The joggers. I keep putting on the joggers and walking around in front of my wife. She likes it. That was a weird thing because I didn't actually know what. Do you know what joggers are? Well, they're new joggers. You know, they're like they're they're like sweatpants. They're like sweatpants, but they're somehow. More high end, yeah. Ooh. The shape yeah. is different. They kind of taper down your leg, like um, yeah. you know, oh, like skinny jeans. Except they're like almost, skinny jeans with almost. sweatpants. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say I don't endorse that yeah, product. I didn't. I <laughs> neither did either. I. Neither did I. But I put them on, and I was like, I was like, these. I don't know how I look because I didn't have a mirror in the cabin, mm-hmm. except in the bathroom. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> you. So I couldn't see how they look. They look kind of strange from up here, but I don't know. So I was like, whatever. Bro, he, their he origin, they're dope. He wore the origin jogger pants and the matching and origin the sweatshirt yeah, or hoodie. Yeah. And he went. He rolled out like that, like it was like it was the deal. <laughs> it was the deal. And, and he looked. It was a straight up leisure suit, is what yeah. he was rolling. Yeah. In. Yeah. Yeah, he was, was not playing around. And then when I when I came in, <laughs> I thought people would be like, "Oh, you know, you don't match in that because I'm not used to wearing." But Pete said I, that I looked good in it. And then my wife said I looked good in it. Oh, well, that one I'll but give you credit I, for. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not giving you credit. Pete made it. Of course, you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you look great. No, but it was a moment of honesty because he mentioned, 
either you, I don't, I think it was you or someone. He was like, I don't think J- Jocko could pull it off. Yeah, or so- he's right. Something like that. No, it might have been someone else. I don't think he was talking about well, you. He's right. <laughs> either way, Jocko doesn't want to pull it Jocko off. Ain't pulling off. <laughs> Whatever. Clothes designed what I, for what girls. I did notice. No. No, not happening. (laughs) Oh, maybe I'm not secure in my manhood. No, I just don't wear girls' clothes. Apparently not. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, functionally, that is what I noticed right when I put them on, though. Like when you roll out, you know how like if you have, and not that it's even a big deal. Even me talking about it. A lot of times, Echo says things like, "You know how it is when." Like something happens, but yeah, actually, yeah. not. No, yes, a lot of times I have you know no idea when you're wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> yeah, like I actually have a lot of times I have no idea what he's talking about, but I roll with it because <laughs> no, we're no, trying to do. condense the timeline <laughs> of the support speech <laughs> speaking, <laughs> which is hard. In the spirit of accuracy, I'm gonna go down this hole. You know when you wear? Have you ever worn sweatpants ever in your life? Not really. Any kind of sweatpants. Okay, Rob Jones. I have worn sweat pre-injury. I have. Yeah, yeah. So consider this: when you let's say, like, I don't know, you're running or walking or whatever, like the sweatpants are you loose, they flow. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal. I dig it. I understand. But the skinny jeans, sweatpants, <laughs> joggers. I we shouldn't Bro, even say skinny jeans. You need to it's get like this a, off a my thing. podcast now. <laughs> anyway, Stop. You're rejected. Anyway, they function because they don't flap around. They're like, if you're running with them, they work. I just run in shorts. Right. For that very reason. I don't care if it's three feet of snow. <laughs> I just run in shorts. <laughs> Nonetheless. You're pretty good to go. Hey, <laughs> don't knock it till you try it. Also, Jocko has some supplements. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this, Rob Jones, but Super Krill. Available now? Available. Boom. OriginMain.com. OriginMain.com. Click on the top. Com. Labs. It says <laughs> labs on the top of the uh, uh, menu. What do they call it? The top menu on the website. Labs. Super Krill, Joint Warfare. Yes. That's a big one. I mean, we know Krill is like the base. Yeah. The Joint Warfare. Yeah. So good. And the significance, well, layers, if you will. I think, you know, maybe that's a stretch with layers. But this is the the stuff that you've been taking from yes. jump, as you yes. say. With some bonus. Bonus stuff. Bonus stuff that I now can take in one shot. So, like, when you're... Even before this podcast and stuff, you're like taking glucosamine and krill oil and all this stuff. And you're like, you know what would be make this even better? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 those little uh, elements or whatever. And, and one day, you know, I'm going to make my own. And boom, it happened. Kind it of. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're in it. Uh, Joint Warfare, that's a good one. Uh, super Krill. This krill, It has an added thing, right, in the kr- Super Krill? Krill it's, oil and it's, it's like Super little, Krill. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it. Super Krill. Dope Krill. Okay. What else are you going to add? I'm it's already super. <laughs> duper? <laughs> we could add duper. Yep. That'll be super duper krill. <laughs> coming out. See, now he's going to take the market from us. I, I know. Rob but, Jones, yeah. super duper krill yeah. oil. Just, <laughs> just patented it. <laughs> well, he does make things happen. I just got that the website sure. and the Twitter handle. Yeah, the domain. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but yeah, so basically everything you need for the joint situation, you're covered. And then what about that pre-work, uh, pre-mission? Pre-mission, pre-mission, it's coming. Pre-workout, it's coming. Pre-mission. Not available yet. Pre-mission oh, okay. will be coming soon. Yeah, it's We're coming not going to talk about that one. We'll talk about it. We later. are. We, it is. It is in the testing phase and has been being tested. Yeah. And legit. All right. So far, so good. <laughs> Boom. I'm kind of addicted to it. Yep. <clears throat> also, on it. Dot com slash Jocko. Okay. So. I get all my kettlebells from on it. Mm. I got into kettlebells after this podcast kind of started. And, you know, on it has awesome stuff. 
specifically the kettlebells because they're the designer ones. You've seen that guy yeah, before, yeah. right? So, so I get the whole set. Well, I don't have the whole set technically. I have the weights that I think I'm going to be able to use. What's your heaviest one you have at home? Uh, 40 kilograms. So what is that? 80. 88 pounds. <laughs> 88 pounds. That's cool, man. Cool yeah. story. I got the 90-pound one, so oh, whatever. Nice. So basically all 88 pounds that you have, I have that plus more. Two more. So no big deal. Stand by you know, and order more. All right, there you go. Good. <laughs> and it's, But you wear skinny jeans. Uh, or skinny <laughs> Joggers. <laughs> contemporary joggers from time to that time. That subtracts at least four pounds. Yeah. <laughs> Your next kettlebell. <laughs> It adds it. Functionally, it it adds it, by the way. Got the Gorilla ones a few weeks ago. Um, The 90-pound one is the Bigfoot, just for uh, informational purposes. Are they ever going to make a 100-pound Jocko head? (laughs) Actually, they said that, right? (laughs) People have been saying (laughs) that. There's been some requests. I don't know if anyone would actually want that. Yeah. I saw saw a guy sent me a a 250, 200-something-pound kettlebell. Dang. I don't even know what I mean. Yeah, I guess, right? Goals. That's legit. There's like you know, some people are just mutant strong. Yeah. yeah. One, one of my team guy buddies, just mutant strong. And he trained jujitsu, great dude. But he got uh, the beast. I, I don't know who makes it, but there's a kettlebell called the beast. I think mm-hmm. it's like a hundred and two pounds or something. Yeah, yeah. But there was like this little test taming the beast mm-hmm. and he got the kettlebell out of the box, did the test, passed it. <laughs> I, I was like, I mean, things that I couldn't do at all. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, you're legit. Yeah. Kettlebells are crazy. Yeah. Actually, it's cool. That's like one of those exercises that you, if you learn that the form, it's like an added element because you got to learn the form. Yeah. Then the strength. And the f- so and learning the fun. form is good for you because you're developing. You're developing uh, neuro. Right, muscular connections. Yes, like it, it, boom, it, thank it, you. Amen, you know. I was lost for words, and you had me cover and move. No, no problem, I got you. But yeah, so you need, it's basically you have to learn to balance something that's not balanced. Yeah. You know? It's good. Like that bag I lifted in Maine, those guys had me lift. It's good. 200 pounds, by the way. Wow. <laughs> no worries. Anyway, it's super hard. I failed the first time. Also, <laughs> they got, what, jump ropes, maces. You know, you, if your workout gets boring. Jocko doesn't have that problem. Yeah. We know, we know, because you just are here to win and all this stuff. But <laughs> some people, they get bored, you know, with a workout. You get all this cool stuff. Anyway, uh, on it.com slash Jocko. It's a good one. Also, when you buy these, actually, I'm going to put a link to your journal, if you don't mind. Yeah, on the website. Do. Yeah, and yeah there's nothing to buy. It's free. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But if, you know, you go on there, I'll put in the book section. And oh, that'd be awesome. If, yeah, yeah man, it's good. And if you, if people want to get, some of the other books that Jocko uh, talks about, you go to our website, jockopodcast.com. Books from podcasts, that's on the top menu, and then you click through there to get your books. Takes you to Amazon. Boom, click through there. Or if you do any other shopping, boom, click through there. That's a good way to support. Small action, big reaction. It is a legit way to support. For sure. It is. I've been, I got asked that two times now. Yeah. Once in Maine. And I think I was at an event the other day, uh, and someone asked me, yeah. "Does it really help?" And I was like, "Yes, it yes. helps." Yeah, it's it. I I said it's exactly what Echo says it is. Yep, small action. It takes what like three extra seconds. Yeah, small action. Boom, one, two clicks, whatever. And uh, you know, big support, big reaction. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. I know it seems kind of 
obvious, right? iTunes, subscribe. But if you haven't, subscribe. Or Stitcher or Google Play. Yeah, anything that provides platforms, just subscribe, man. Good way to support. Easy, you know? Boom. Also, YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel. I put, what was the last video I put on there? The book video. Oh, yeah. Discipline equals equals freedom. freedom. Field Field manual. manual. Video, awesome job on that, by the way. Well, thank really you. cool, pretty good video. I right like on. that video. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good too. Yeah, I felt Jocko did all the work. Really, <laughs> lifting. That was a hard night too. I mean, you were lifting after like a whole day. I was like, bro, I'm not. Yeah, I was. That's that. right. That was a, like a long day. <laughs> that was also, a long day. You know him. He's the kind where I'm like, okay, I just need like these shots, you know, because we're doing it for like other stuff, and I'm gonna grab the stills and whatever, and. I was like, I just need the shots. What I'll do is I'll make it here so you don't have to put on all that weight. And he's like, no, nah, I'll feel like a pussy <laughs> if, if I don't put the weights. I was like, bro, you're the man. I so, did the same exact thing. I was just shooting a video doing lifting weights. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to do it with no weight. I'm like, no, but <laughs> the video that I want, the weight that I want to be on there is yeah. 135 pounds. I want that to be on video. Yeah. I don't want no weight to be yeah. on video. Yeah, he even went one further is that there was a few shots that I was getting that didn't show how much weight. It just showed the front of, the, you know, it was like at an angle you could kind of see part of the weight kind of thing. He's like, no. It's like he wouldn't allow him. So well, I actually it. said, you know, I, I took the Rob Jones approach. I was like, okay, I got to move some weight around. I'm going to use the opportunity to make myself better. Yeah, I, I got a legit yeah. workout. I was getting after <laughs> I, I it. Know. You know, He's a method actor. That's yeah. what method actors <laughs> do. Exactly. Right. Yeah, hey, worked out for him, and I dig it. But, yeah. Nonetheless, back to YouTube, boom. We put some videos on there, including but not limited to the video version of this podcast. Also, additional videos, excerpts, you know, and various other videos. Deleted scenes, if you will. A lot of times we talk rubbish before we actually (laughs) include, you know, or we don't include in the podcast. Um, So sometimes we'll cut that up and put it on there, too, to add it entertainment. You know, here Jocko swear a lot. You know, he doesn't swear that much on, on... on the record but you know he gets after it <laughs> from time to time only, also, only if I'm hanging out with like one of my bros yeah you know. teasing them well yeah yeah that's you don't true. effing just effing get nuts with effing <laughs> squats in your effing thing he was like yeah he like overdid it uh, nonetheless yeah. yeah YouTube that's a good one um, also Jocko has a store if you didn't already know guess what it's called I'm going to go on a limb and say Jocko Store. <laughs> Jocko Store. It's at JockoStore.com. We've got some T-shirts on uh, there. They're cool. They're cool. Little, you know, some layers on those T-shirts. Layers meaning not physical layers. Uh, what do you call it? Poetic mm. layers. Poetic now. Onion poetic. Layers. That's really reaching. Yeah, it's reaching a lot. I think good is pretty poetic. It is. Is that a sonnet? Or? Yeah, real poetic. <laughs> I wrote that one myself. <laughs> you know what the layers are with that, though, right? If you look at the good shirt. It has Jocko's head. Yeah. It has good, right? Mm-hmm. But the good is backwards. Ooh. And here's the thing. That's why when people try to counterfeit that one, they don't they don't get the layers. No. They just see Jocko's head. Oh, let's whoa, that's a marketing thing or whatever. Yeah. And let's sell that, but they don't get it. They don't know the layers. So the yeah. good is backwards, and it's backwards for a reason. So they can the read it? In the mirror. Because oh, who are oh, you saying that? Yeah. When you hear that, who are you saying that to? You're not saying you know, to your poor daughter who's crying because she skinned her knee, you don't say, good. She's like, oh, she cries more. That's not her message. Yeah. It's not your mis- message to give somebody else. your message to give to yourself. Why are you letting your daughter cry in the first place? Well, she's, you know, she's sensitive. <laughs> I'm cultivating her sensitive side. That's all. You're Just not wearing saying. a T-shirt for yourself to look down like that. You're wearing it so other people can read it and you can read it. In a typical case, but not these T-shirts. Yeah. That T-shirt is for you. Straight oh, okay. up for you. With the message, 
with Jocko's face. Apparently, that's for you, too. Not for everybody, but this is for you. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's just an example of the layers on the shirts. JockoStore.com. There's also some hoodies on there, some travel mugs, bumper bumper stickers. The Jocko 2016, I took it off. Oh, yeah. We lost that election. Yeah, you did. Sorry. I probably got like 27 votes. Yeah. I got some legit votes. People posted them on Twitter. <laughs> some people wrote me in yeah, straight yeah. up. They yeah. wrote me in. I did. And it. said, you know what? I don't want Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I don't want Donald Trump. I want Jocko. I want Jocko. Yeah. I think it might have been a good choice, actually. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, think, I think it might have been a good choice. Yeah. Someone actually told me that I should run for vice president. That wouldn't have been a good choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if you would have got my vote. No, no, I don't know. I wouldn't have got my vote either. <laughs> Nonetheless, there's some cool stuff on Jocko Store. That's the point. Um, you know, I'm not saying go buy some stuff. I'm saying go on there. See what up. See what's on there. And if you like something, get something. Good way to support. Also, there's a little thing called psychological warfare. You ever heard of it? Yeah, I think I have. It's pretty dope. I have it. I'll tell you what. Oh, dang. Okay, so I don't have to let you know that it's an album. Oh, with yeah. tracks Jocko tracks So basically If you don't already know Rob Jones knows Jocko knows I know Obviously Let's say You're on your Campaign Against weakness That's mm-hmm. that's the official Going turn Ca- Campaign against weakness right. right And I'm gonna be disciplined In all these areas On my life Waking up early Diet I'm gonna work out You know However many times a day Study Read Study Get read. smarter Work harder yeah, just normal stuff. Yeah, normal getting after it. Yep. Campaign. Stuff. Campaign, stuff. yeah. And you have a moment of weakness like Jocko with the mint chocolate chip Dang. ice cream. Avoid that. Jocko obviously didn't listen to his own album with tracks, Jocko <laughs> tracks, of psychological warfare. What you do is anytime you, you come across these moments of weakness, listen. put a track, put a track in. Like if you're having a hard time waking up, you want to hit the snooze or whatever, boom, get Wake up, get up, wake up. Wake up and, wake get, up after and get after it. it. That's the track name. <laughs> Help you right through that weakness. Smash the weakness, actually. But yeah, Psychological Warfare, Jocko Willink. MP3, iTunes, Wherever Amazon. MP3s are being distributed, that's where you can get them. Uh, you can also, on Amazon, you can get something called Jocko White Tea. Rob Jones had his first Jocko White Tea today. Delicious. Not only delicious, but I've noticed you've been very attentive your yeah. words are crisp and clear i mean you feel the power yeah. right yeah uh, look just, at him it totally increased look at him <laughs> he's ready to rock and roll my tenacity yeah my uh mental capacity increased at least tenfold yeah if not more so, so there you go jocko white tea you can get that on amazon it, t- it legit though. How good does it taste oh it's really good it, yeah. it's it's and it doesn't it's it doesn't really taste like tea Right? No, it it like, kind of yeah. tastes like tea. Does it have any sugar in it? No. You're telling no. me Jocko White Tea doesn't have any sugar and it tastes no. that good? and it tastes that good. What yeah. does it taste it's like? Incredible. It tastes like victory. <laughs> uh, hey, we got some books on Amazon and wherever you want to buy books. Extreme Ownership, Combat Lesson, Combat Leadership Lessons Learned, and how you can apply those to business and life. Way of the Warrior Kid. Yeah. Way the warrior kid. That's what you need to get for every kid you know. It is so helpful for kids. I wish I had that book when I was nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old. It's so helpful, and I'm getting such great feedback. So buy that for the kids you know, 
for sure. Coming up soon, the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. That's right, it is a field manual. How to implement and execute operation discipline into your life. Follow the field manual. You can get it from your local bookstore, you can get it from Barnes and Noble, you can get it from Amazon. Let them all know what's up. Also, Echelon Front, leadership consulting for your business or team. That's what we do. You can email us at info at echelonfront.com. And in the meantime, if you need us or you just want to check in, we are rolling kind of deep on the interwebs, <laughs> on Twitter, on Instagram, and the face hockey. <laughs> Rob Jones is at Rob Jones Journey. At Rob Jones Journey. He's going to be documenting all this awesome slash could be stupid, but could be mostly awesome stuff that yeah. he's doing. Yeah. And we like to watch people do crazy stuff, so yeah, we're gonna watch you do that. And I'll post a picture, and usually I like to put a little snippet of wisdom in there. Oh, yeah. it's a little paragraph for people to read. Nice. Start their day instead of the New York Times. Yeah, don't don't do that. <laughs> Just go straight to the to the Rob Jones snippet of wisdom. It. Yeah. That's I like the example, how you say you want to be the example. Because mm-hmm. some people, they say, I just want to be the example, but they don't explain it. You just explained it actually in a way that was kind of revealing to me where it makes sense. You know, you're like, hey, I'm going to, and this goes for everything, by the way. Like, if you want to, I do like a special effects sometimes. And yeah. I'm like, man, I want to do this, but man, that's like some high end effect. I can't do it on this. And then, but then let's say I look it up on YouTube mm-hmm. and be like, oh, wait, look, he did it right here. And then, you know, sometimes they show them how, show how sometimes they don't. But like how you said, like, if you don't think like if you think oh yeah it, that kind of can't be done yeah. you know like for someone in my position or whatever you know but then you see someone oh wait he's doing it and then you're doing it where it's like you're doing even more so it's like oh you're kind of reaching more people in that yeah. way because still if you're doing these crazy things maybe one maybe two other people be like yeah I can do that too but most people they'll be like oh, I can't do that crazy yeah. stuff yeah. but I can do all this other stuff you know what I mean other yeah. stuff that they didn't think they could do before that's it's the good. word man that's the word's crazy not stupid. The stuff you're doing is awesome. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. You've got to be crazy to do it. Uh, so, yeah. Rob Jones Journey. And that includes robjonesjourney.com as well. Which, and that from there, you can get the, to the donation page mm-hmm. for when you're starting all this, all this uh, 31 marathons in 31 days. Most people run a marathon and it, I think I've read it takes like six months to actually recover from a marathon. Yeah, I guess it depends on your level of preparedness, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to do it in about six hours. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. awesome. Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink. Echo, you got anything else for today? Thank you for coming on, Rob Jones. Rob, any closing thoughts from you? Oh, I just want to start by pointing out that I think every guest you've ever had on this podcast is somebody that I consider to be a hero. And I don't, I don't throw that around. They're patriots and they are heroes. And it is humbling for me to be included. For you to have me on the podcast is vastly humbling for me to be included among the people that you 
deem worthy of being on the podcast. So I just want to thank both of you for, for having me and giving me this opportunity. And I just hope that some of the stuff that I said can resonate with, with some of the, some of the listeners. And beyond that, I've done a lot of stuff, but nobody does that by themselves. I have had so many people that have helped me, therapists, prosthetists, coaches, mentors, and family, friends, and then especially Pam. I mean, I told you before, she's doing everything. She was instrumental in getting this podcast done, getting me on as as a guest here. Took it upon herself to to tweet you. She's calling press. She's helping me get venues. She's it's been incredible, and she's my number one supporter. And uh, you know, too good for me. But hopefully, <laughs> she doesn't listen to that. <laughs> hopefully, she'll she'll continue to be deluded. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm at the top of the pyramid. Like I get all the kind of the notoriety and the congratulations for doing the stuff that I've done, but without the base of the pyramid, the pyramid is shit. It's just a block on the ground. So without all these people, I mean I wouldn't have accomplished it. I would have I might have tried, but I wouldn't be I wouldn't be where I am. Probably wouldn't be on the podcast. I wouldn't have actually done anything. Well um you know, for everyone that's come on and, and, and to sit here and have you, you know, the, to have you and the people that have come on this podcast and have you sitting across the table from me and be able to spend time with you yesterday and hang out with you, I am rewarded a thousandfold, a thousandfold from you to me. That's that's where the reward comes. And it's an honor, a thousandfold for you to be here and and be sitting here talking to me and I thank you for coming on I thank you for your service I thank you for your sacrifice I thank you for the example that you're setting which is awesome and and showing everyone what it really means to to persevere and to not only not only overcome challenges but you are embracing those challenges and turning the harshest of challenges into something positive and something good and that is what i'm thanking you for for explaining what it really means to adapt and overcome no matter what we face and to everyone out there that's listening and you're going through hard times or you're facing a rough patch or a challenge or an obstacle in your life adapt to it grow from it overcome it transcend it and use the weight of that challenge to make you stronger. And until next time, this is Rob Jones and Echo and Jocko out.